Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. From the halls of assembly, you'll hear us scream and shout. Our love of Indiana is manic and devout. Archie and his boys, we discuss in unique manner. We won't be satisfied until we hang another banner. Us two goofy guys go by names of Ward and Eric. And as you probably know by now, we're Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Eric, it's time for another podcast. And this particular podcast. Just this one? Just this one. What about all the rest? Well, also all the rest. Okay. Uh, they all have been are and will be powered by Was that all in one breath? One breath. You have incredible breath control. I, I'm delirious right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you have a paper bag. Um, yeah, man. Powered by Peaks. By the way, we got to say this: we we don't do current events. We, but we can. For the, are yeah, we, gonna... we don't know when exactly this one's going to go out. Maybe Tuesday. Yeah, let's put okay. this one out Tuesday so we can talk about current events. Geronimo. <laughs> we did not plan that. No, nope. did not plan that. Nope. That's just that's just what we have now. It is. I'm sorry. Hold on. Did you just get a text from Calbert Chain? I did. Weird. Okay. Hold on. I, I'm gonna I'm a gonna lot. read this. The breaking news from the, the greatest. I had sent Calbert Chaney a long text thanking him for meeting him at the fantasy camp. Oh, he got that was and so he amazing just, to see. I haven't video. read this, so we may have to cut this out. Okay. Well, let's but see how said, it goes. It was great meeting you, Eric. I hope you didn't hurt anything at Vic's camp. Well, oh. do you count my butthole and tailbone? He did not he get did the not. memo. Sounds like a great thing that you're doing on November 16th. Not sure I'll be able to make it, though. It's too far out. But if anything changes, I'll give you a holla. Have a great day, my man. Hey, I'll take he's a, far away. I'll take a maybe I'll from take a maybe. Calbert and Erie. And Calbert Chaney says it's a great thing we're doing on November 16th. If Calbert says it, then it must be true. Which is, on November 16th, the first ever Hoosier Hysterics Homecoming. Homecoming. Thank you. I forget who gave... A couple people gave the idea for Homecoming on Twitter. Thank you. Much better than the Hoosier Hysterics Herf. I might still secretly call it the Herf. We may do a Herf at some <laughs> point. But Hoosier Hysterics Homecoming, November 16th in Bloomington. We don't know the time. We don't know the location. Wait, could a... What if we, like... Should we bring, like, a big box of cigars back and have a Homecoming Herf? We could definitely bring some cigars. You know, just like, okay, everybody who wants to have, like, all Hysterics fans, players, any, like, we're going to go over here off to the side of the homecoming at a at another appointed time and place in Bloomington that weekend and have a herf. There's a nice cigar, like, lounge at the uh, Briar and Burley Cigar Store in the back right in Kirkwood on the square that has, like, room for, like, 
20 people. I think we're figuring this out as we're talking yeah. about it. But let's talk about the event. November yeah. 16th, former players showing up. Uh, we're going to do some giveaways of tickets. We'll have our T-shirts there. Yeah. Right? Yep. Super so soft. We'll talk more about the T-shirts at the end of the show. And uh, please follow us on Twitter, at Hoosier Hysterics, No Vowels and Hysterics, to get all the uh, details on that. I'll also post on the Peaks message board. But Jordan Geronimo. Geronimo. You know, Stud. Yeah. I don't care. We're, Stud. We're getting this... The state, uh, Archie's locking it down, right? We've got Trey and we've got uh, Anthony, but to, we're all like, okay, all right, but who's the guy with the super high ceiling, right? Yeah, Jordan Geronimo. I mean, I he's don't— He's got a name for it. He's got a great name. And and I don't get excited about the video mixtapes highlights. You know, those just like I end up watching like two minutes and I'm like, uh, uh I yeah, get where it. are the misses? And then just seeing his skill to go along with his athleticism, knowing he's still just kind of starting to put it all together. And some emotion. He shows emotion out there, yeah. which I really like, because well, Archie does not want a quiet team. And the emotion, clearly, he was giving to Rabbi in his interview. Like, I'm jumping around in my backyard. Yes. Yes, you are. So let's focus on that for a second. Okay. No one listening to this podcast, I, I think it's safe to say no one. No one knew who Jordan Geronimo was six months ago. Correct. No one. Right. The reason we all know who Jordan Geronimo was five months ago, four months ago, three months ago, however it started, I think in April, is because of Jeff Rabjohns and Pigs.com. He saw him. He was told that Indiana was looking at him. He covered the story. He scouted him for us. He showed video of him. He is the reason we knew that Jordan Geronimo was on the radar for Indiana University. That ride over the last several months on the Jordan Geronimo recruitment, and then Rabbi is the one who broke the story that he committed mm -hmm. on, was it Labor Day night? Oh, you, I, or the day before. I think it was Labor Day. It was a few it was, days yeah. ago. Rabbi broke the story. It is worth a full year of Peeg's subscription just for this last couple weeks of what Rab Johns and Peeg's have covered with the Jordan Geronimo recruitment. That's why you go to Peeg's.com a thousand times a day. It's why you spend $9.95 a month because it was so much fun following this recruitment from the genesis of it to the completion of it. It And it had, I was lucky enough that my first ever chat, Peeg's chat, uh, occurred in the aftermath of his commitment to see so many of what I presume are you listeners out there jumping in on that chat, just being so excited, us as a fan base, you know, with Leal and with Galloway, there was a certain amount of expectation. It almost would have just, just been anger if we didn't get them. So when we did get them, it was like, okay, check. Two Indiana guys we wanted to get, we should get, and we did get. But this kid, Jordan, came out of nowhere. And for me, I'm like, oh, he's he's rising fast out of nowhere. Are the other, you know, the blue bloods gonna come in and scoop him away from us? Right. You know, oh God, we need to like we need to close this fast before word gets out and and somebody steals him. But it's so apparent that even before he got to Bloomington, he was just like, he gets it. Like this kid from the East Coast somehow understands what we've got going on and wanted to be a part of it. And it's just so fun to be welcoming that energy. And I feel like Jordan Geronimo went 
to his official visit at Indiana and went to basically the Archie Miller fantasy camp. I feel like he got the same experience that I got. He never been he had never been to Indiana before. I've been to Indiana before, but he got to walk onto the floor of Assembly Hall. He got to play and hang out with the players and see what that was like. He had to got he got to go to Little Zagreb's for dinner, <laughs> and he walked out of that weekend going, "Well, shit, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm signing up for this." <laughs> Like, I love that. Like, he just experienced it the way that us fans think you experience Bloomington when you go and get the red carpet rolled out. Well, and then you very literally got a simulation of what he went through. Oh, yeah, sure, right. You know, And you get that at the camp. By the way, the camp is filling up with spots. If anybody listening to this wants to go to the camp next year, I've put it out on Twitter and on Peegs. Send me a DM on Twitter. I'll get your name and email on the list. But but there has been like a tremendous response, and they're already honing in on the dates. It's going to be in August again. It'll probably be in later August, third or fourth weekend. It's going to happen again next year, and it's going to be better. And, and guys, I can promise you this. If you sign up to be a player, you will not be the worst player in the camp. <laughs> well, we can actually promise them this. Yeah. They will not be one of the two worst players <laughs> because Ward Roberts is going to the fantasy camp next year. Guys. I'll be there, folks. I will, will be, be there. there. The Hoosier Hysterics, in their full complement, will be at the fantasy camp next year. So we would love to see you guys there. But before that, we want to see you on November 16th. Now, let's pivot to what we're doing today. I have been anxious and nervous about this interview. It is one unlike any other, and I think we're finding they, they're yeah, all, all unique are. once you dig into it. But this is certainly one, I think, when this name pops up and people are like, oh, really? Yeah, interesting. And I hope we do it justice, truthfully, because um, this one has some meaning to it. I think that that we've got to be better than we're capable of to handle. So let's hope we are. <laughs> well, and look, we talk about glory days a lot on this show, especially when we haven't had any for a long time. Yeah, right. But to talk to these guys and this gentleman that there is a lot of darkness in life and in sport, that it's something it's important to talk about. And it's part of the journey, too. And it, and I think it just completes the full picture of the history of Indiana University, which you, I think, coined as that we hope this podcast becomes the the oral scrapbook of Indiana history that Assembly Call liked, by the way. Yeah, oral. Is there a different word? Verbal? An audio history? An audio, hist- an audio scrapbook of Indiana University basketball history. The glory and the not. <laughs> we'll work on that. Yeah. But maybe audio instead of oral. But to your point, I think that it just paints a full picture when we're able to go through the highest of the highs and the lowest of the lows. And um, the gentleman we're talking to today has experienced both. Eric, would you like to let the folks at home know who we're speaking with today? This is a really special one that you and I have been talking about for a while. Um this is a gentleman who has experienced more ups and downs in his life than uh, most do, and, and he's not that old yet. So uh, it's pretty incredible what he's been through in his lifetime. Uh, I, I have a personal connection to him in that I was at Indiana uh, during his redshirt sophomore year, 
and we'll get into that a little bit. But this gentleman hails from Jeffersonville, Indiana. This gentleman went to the state title game as a junior and then returned his senior year to win the state championship in the state of Indiana, which, as we know, is a huge, huge deal. He was named a McDonald's High School All-American in 1993. He was named Mr. Basketball in the state of Indiana, and yes, there's a story behind that that we will get to. He went on to play at Indiana for a couple years. He left Indiana, went on to an eight-year professional basketball career, and now and, and then got into coaching and is now the head coach at Madison Consolidated High School. Please welcome a man who has lived more life, I think, than Ward and I combined. Please welcome Sharon Wilkerson. <laughs> but I greatly appreciate your kind words there, my friend. Greatly appreciate it. <laughs> so, Sharon, tell us what you're doing right now. Where are you at? Are you uh, Tell us about Madison and, and what your life is like right now. So I am uh, married. I've been married for uh, 20 years, been with my wife for 22 years. Uh, I have a 23-year-old daughter, uh, also uh, raising two nieces uh, at, at the current time. Uh, working in Madison, Indiana, I actually uh, work for a company based out of Indianapolis. It's an environmental company, uh, but I work here at a facility uh, here in Madison that actually makes, makes car lifts. I've been here for uh, 13 years other than the two-year hiatus uh, that I took to go uh, coach at Lamar University with Pat Knight. And, uh, you know, guys, I just uh, – just kind of fell into this position here at Madison High School. Uh, I was uh, just trying to give back to my, my community there in Jeffersonville. I uh, was the assistant coach for three years. Uh, and then a uh, job here in Madison opened up at a little uh, private Catholic school called uh, Madison Shaw. And uh, from that point, uh, Madison, which is a 3A school, opened up and uh, just kind of fell into a really, really good spot. So uh, for whatever the reason, guys, my blessings just keep coming. How much do you love it down there in Madison? Oh, it's an unbelievable community, guys. Uh, not only is it a tight-knit, uh, very close-knit community, uh, they are basketball crazy. <laughs> uh, so uh, this, is, uh, this is the epitome of Indiana high school basketball. And, and again, guys, I, I can't, uh, couldn't, be, couldn't be in a better place right now. Now, Sharon, you're in a place where – sometimes loyalties get split because you're so close to that other state that we don't like talking about on this show. Um, if you could, if you could uh, summarize the split in Madison, how ma what percentage of the Madison community is rooting for Indiana University and what percentage is rooting for the bad guys? You know, that is a great question, and I I'll be honest with you, Eric. They, uh, it's more Kentucky fans here than it is Indiana fans. Ugh, and I, I, you got to change that. You got to change I'm, that. I'm working on it. I'm working on it, guys. I am. I work on it every day. <laughs> every day. I work. <laughs> it's uh, you, you know, Madison, Indiana is is, is on the river, uh, and and in fact, uh, we are literally uh, five minutes uh, apart. Uh, so it, it's it's kind of funny, guys, because. Uh, you know, Indiana is Indiana. I mean, it's, yeah. it's the Hoosiers. Uh, so, um, but you know, we we got a lot of 
we got a lot of Kentucky fans down here that I tease all the time. So now, yeah, <laughs> do you get any kind of sense that that split has gone in the wrong direction over the last like 20, 25 years as as they have continued to maintain the the top five status and IU has struggled to get back there? Do you feel like there's a whole generation that just grew up liking Kentucky more because uh, that's all they know? You know, guys, I, I think that. Uh, I think, like with anything, it, it, it has evolved. Uh, you know, Kentucky, uh, I think there's – obviously there's more than one way to get downtown. Uh, let me be clear in saying this. Uh, I, I think Coach Calipari takes a different approach than most. Uh, I think, as you guys know, he's he's in the one-and-done realm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does a really good job of getting those high-caliber kids uh, that is on a one-track uh, road to potentially having an NBA career. Uh, and I think that Indiana is more traditional in the sense uh, they're looking for four-year guys that's going to be a part of the family, that's going to build a program uh, from the ground up. Uh, so I think it's a, you know, it's a different approach. Uh, can you still get to the same, uh, same goal? Absolutely. But just different approach. Well, and I think, uh, we, yeah, I was going to say, Sharon, let's see if you can still get to the same goal. We haven't been there in a while, so the jury's out. But to Sharon's to Sharon's point, if you look at Virginia and Villanova and right. and that stuff, it's like, yeah, get old, stay old, and and we're all certainly excited here, seeing all these Indiana guys signing up for the new the new regime under Archie and Bloomington. I guess we can get to that later. We definitely want to hear what you're thinking about the current state of the program. But let's go back to the beginning for you you as a kid growing up when Indiana was in its heyday did you grow up an IU fan you know what guys actually I did not grow up an IU fan who was your team you know, Jeffersonville Jeffersonville is, is right across the bridge you know it's on that 65 corridor mm-hmm. and uh, the University of Louisville is right across the bridge guys oh boy uh, so I, I grew up as a, as a Cardinal fan and watching those guys uh, you know play at a high level uh, it, it was very inspiring and very motivating. Uh, I was probably a Cardinal fan until probably my freshman year of high school. And uh, once my freshman year of high school uh, hit, you know, I got a little bit more educated. My eyes got a <laughs> yeah. little bit more opened up. And, uh, and of course, from that point, uh, my heart uh, changed to uh, Indiana University and Coach Knight. I, I'm curious because we're, we're all around the same age, uh, Sharon, and – were you a fan of like Purvis Ellison back in the day? Was he a guy that you, you looked got at? It, buddy. Yeah, absolutely. Purvis Ellison, Felton Spencer, LeBradford Smith, Eric Sullivan. I mean, these were some of the these were some of the greats at the time. And you know, as and growing up as an aspiring uh, athlete, you know, you you have a tendency to to look at the guys that's on TV that's having success, and and you want to try to mimic what those guys are doing. Uh, so for me, it, it was a huge inspiration, and it uh, it played a big part uh, in my personal development, guys. So uh, I was blessed in that sense. So taking even a step back from, from that, Sharon, when did you find the game of basketball? How did you find it? When do you remember first kind of falling in love with it? I played. I started playing athletics at about the second or third grade. Uh, actually, guys, I, it's it's a funny story. Baseball is really my favorite sport. <laughs> okay. Uh, just wasn't good enough. And I'll be honest with you, my eighth grade year, I got cut. And that's when the whole thing flipped. Wow. So, you know, we're growing up in a day and age where parents are ultra involved with sports programs. And even to a certain extent, even at the college level, uh, parents try to uh, 
have an opinion on on how their sons and daughters are are treated and coached and and managed. And uh, I, I was in a unique situation because the message that was sent to me from my parents when I got cut was, if you want to play, then you have to earn it. And me getting cut my eighth grade year was the complete turnaround in my basketball path. And it uh, it really motivated me because I felt like I should have made the team. Uh, but at the same time, I had to respect what the coaches, uh, what his viewpoint was. And that was the motivating factor for me that really impacted uh, my basketball path. To, to take a quick detour to baseball for a second, I, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, which is a baseball town with the St. Louis Cardinals. Did you have a major league team that you were uh, obsessed with? I did, Chicago Cubs. Uh, we, we're going to have to end this conversation, Sharon. <laughs> this has been fun to talk to you, but we're going to have to end I, it. I, I was the Chicago Cubs fan, guys. I, I mean, that was when Greg Maddox was around and Rick Sutcliffe and Andre Dawson. And, Leon Durham, I mean, I was, Ryan was Sandberg, yes, My, Ma- Mark Grace. Wonderful. That's right, buddy. You got it. That's right. Yeah, all, all a bunch was, of D-bags. I, was, <laughs> 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 I get it. Yeah, I get it. I get it. <laughs> oh, um, guys, I was really entrenched with those guys growing up. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, so then eighth grade, it turns for you. Now you're getting into high school. Um, I assume you had played like many kids back then where you kind of played all the sports. Uh, you had messed around with basketball. But to become what you became in four years, basically, in your high school career, must have taken a tremendous amount of focus and dedication. When did, did Was it getting cut from the baseball team that, that just flipped a switch for you that I have to take basketball really seriously? Or when did that moment happen? It was a combination of, of, of a couple of things, but that was probably number one at the list. Uh, guys, there's there's nothing more humbling uh, than being put in your place. I, I hate to put it like that, but uh, that's as I reflect back as a grown man now, that for me that, that's what it was. Um, I'm, I'm not for sure if I got cut due to my lack of talent, if I got cut due to my approach, if I got cut because of my attitude, uh, but for whatever the reason, uh, it was what I needed at that time, uh, so it was uh, it was a form of tough love, and uh, it really grabbed my attention. And from that point, guys, and I'm not being facetious nor uh, exas- exaggerating the the story when I tell you, I absolutely lived it. Uh, I probably wasn't even the most talented player on my team, but unequivocally, I was the most committed and the hardest worker. Uh, I lived it. In fact, guys, I played so much basketball at one point, my mother sat me down and told me she was going to put me on punishment because I was obsessed with it. And that's a true story. <laughs> wow. So, uh, yeah, I, I just uh, I, I, I just lived it, guys. And, and that's, uh, you know, if you want to be successful in this day and age with the competition, you got to want it just as bad as you need to breathe. And uh, fortunate for me, I, I had that drive. And was that drive – you love the game so much and you just wanted to see what your absolute potential was, or did you already look ahead to, I want to get a scholarship and I want to play professionally and I want to make a career out of this. Where, where, where was the drive coming from when you were in eighth grade? You know, that's a great question. So as, as a kid growing up, you know, I got made fun of a lot, whether it was, I uh, didn't have the right shoes, the right clothes, uh, my haircut, Whatever the case was, I got made fun of a lot. And when I figured out 
that I was pretty good in basketball, uh, that was even more motivation. You know, I, I had, I won't necessarily call it anger that I had, but I, I had some things to prove. And that to me, uh, is, is what motivates you. And guys, I, I never, I never set out to win a state championship, never set out to be Mr. Basketball. I, I honestly, guys, I never even set out to even play at the college level. And looking back, uh, I think that that was a big part of the reason that I was able to uh, accomplish all of those accolades. I was just focused on the, the goal at hand. And the task at hand was to make the team and be the best player that I could be. And fortunate, it just turned out and uh, happened to work out the way that it did. Uh, but even through the successes, uh, my motivation was the game. And, and that is what, uh, what really pushed me. So you said that growing up you were a Louisville fan until you got to your freshman year in high school. So and then you, and then I think what you said to quote you you said you got more educated. <laughs> I'm going to just say you wisened up and you started <laughs> you started uh, casting your eyes uh, and your vision a little north. When was your first kind of introduction to Indiana University basketball, and was there a moment or a player or a team that made you really start looking at them? Yes, it was. It was two things that happened. Well, actually, uh, my father was an avid Indiana Hoosier fan. Smart man, uh, good man, that, a good from man. The that, <laughs> from the time that I remember, life guys, he was uh, he was an Indiana Hoosier fan and an LA Laker fan. Uh, so uh, nobody's that perfect. Being said, <laughs> that being said, you know, it, uh, my eyes got opened up to IU uh, once I ventured out and started playing AAU. You know, being down in southern Indiana, you know, they call us Kentuckiana, guys, mm -hmm. and they call us Kentuckiana for a reason. Uh, I mean, man, we are literally right on that border. Uh, so once I started venturing north, uh, Indianapolis specifically, uh, that's when my eyes was opened up to uh, to really good basketball. And, of course, uh, I mean, I think that uh, Coach Knight speaks for himself. Uh, I mean, man, and once I got introduced to the AAU circuit, uh, the next thing I know, guys started telling me, hey, you're pretty good. What would you think about playing at, the, at Indiana University for Bobby Knight? And for me at that time specifically, that was just a – that was a dream so far, guys, that I didn't even think I had a chance to attain that dream. Uh, so it was fun to, to think about and, and be mentioned in the conversation. Uh, but for me, that wasn't even part of reality. So um, thinking about that really pushed me to see if it could come to fruition. And uh, by God, it sure did, guys. Well, one thing that was part of your reality is that you were a hell of an athlete. I read that you at one point had about a 41-inch vertical leap. Would you say 43. that's... 43. 43? Oh, I, I like that. You corrected it. 43. All right. Uh, and, and to put it into context, Eric's vertical is four and mine is three. No way. Well, are we talking centimeters? <laughs> There's no way I'm a four-inch vertical leap. So a question that we always like to ask, Sharon, is... You had a 43-inch vertical leap. When do you have a memory of the first time you dunked a basketball? And please, if you do, walk us through that. Yes, actually, uh, so it was an interesting story. I was in a unique situation because I was the middle brother. And this is what I mean by that. There was two guys specifically, a guy by the name of Mike Harris and a guy by the name of Joe Estes. Uh, Mike Harris went to Indiana State University. 
and Joe Estes went to Loyola, Chicago. And those guys were playing varsity as freshmen. So those guys were the guys that we were looking up to growing up. They were the bigger brother in an essence. Well, behind me, I had two younger guys that was really good, uh, Corey Norman, uh, who went to Western Carolina out of high school, and Brian Hanley, who actually uh, went to Xavier initially to play basketball and then ended up going to Kansas State and being an All-American offensive lineman. So I was stuck in the middle of what I consider to be greatness. And uh, once, I, once I figured out that, you know, I was pretty good and, and had a little athleticism, that even pushed me more to make sure that I accentuated what I had. And, and guys, I had a routine that I would do. I would do 50 toe raises when I woke up in the morning. I would do 50 toe raises before I got in the shower. I would do 50 toe raises when I got out of the shower. And I would do 50 toe raises uh, before I went to bed. So by the end of the day, that was 200 toe raises that I did. Wow. You had- and the next thing I know, it just started to uh, – it's really started to pay dividends for me. And uh, I remember uh, being in open gym the summer before my sophomore year, and I'm trying, trying, trying. And one day, it just uh, it just happened. And uh, from that point, the light bulb went off, guys, and it was uh, – yeah, it was – it was every single time I could get to that rim. <laughs> how, how good of a feeling was it when you actually rose up and threw it down? I mean, how good did that feel? Oh, guys, I felt like I had conquered the world. Yes. I mean, you, you, you set a goal for yourself, and, and you, uh, you, you work relentlessly uh, to, to reaching that goal. And, and once you reach that goal, it's like, okay, if I'm able to do this, if I just continue to discipline myself, if I just continue to be committed, how far can this really take me? And uh, it, and it just so happens, and, and guys, I tell I, I tell anybody that listens to me all the time that there was some divine intervention involved in my success uh, because Michael Broughton, uh, who was my high school coach, he came in at Jeffersonville just at the right time that I needed a push, and he came in and gave me that push, and that was probably – uh, was the culminating factor that pushed me over the top. Wow. Now, you are also coming of age in your basketball life at the same time that Indiana is experiencing one of the great eras, without a championship, but one of the great eras in its history with Calvert right. Chaney and Greg Graham and Pat Graham and Damon Bailey. Right. and I mean, all, just incredible teams. Were you looking... You're you're a little younger than some of those guys, but did you play against those guys in high school? Who do you remember kind of looking up to or or looking at going, wow, I, I want to play like that guy or, or I want to beat that guy? Well, it's 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 funny, guys, because, uh, you know, Pat Graham went to Floyd Central. Right. And he uh, that's 10 minutes, 15 minutes away from Jeffersonville. And actually, uh, Jeffersonville and Floyd Central is in the same same conference. Uh, now, Pat was uh, four years older than me, so I didn't get a chance to play with uh, against him in high school. But because he had redshirted, broken his foot, I was able to play with him at IU for one year. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I grew up loving all of those guys. But probably Pat and probably Damon probably had a special place. And, that's the, and the reason for that is because both of those guys went to the high schools that was in my conference. Mm-hmm. So I had a chance to, in middle school growing up to go see those guys play in person. And, uh, boy, guys, it was, 
my vocabulary isn't big enough to put into words really how uh, I was I was in awe of both of those guys. Let's and, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go right ahead. Go I, right ahead. I was just going to ask. You know, I think I want to talk about Damon a little bit through your eyes and what it was like as a middle to, school and to walk into a high school gymnasium and see Damon Bailey at the height of his Indiana high school power and prowess. What was that scene like? What was the feeling? Uh, guys, for me, man, it was like Larry Bird reincarnated. Uh, I'm, guys, I cannot put into words how good of a basketball player Damon Bailey was. Uh, you know, and, and especially uh, the, the situation that he was in, you got one of the greatest coaches that ever coached the game that comes to his college team at Indiana University and says, I have an eighth grader that could come here and start right now. <laughs> and that, yeah, that in, you know, on the outside looking in, man, boy, what a great compliment. But from an internal standpoint, uh, I think that the pressure and the expectations uh, that that creates is second to none. And for a guy to be able to not only deal with that pressure, but live up to the expectations and answer answers the call, I think paints a picture uh, for the person uh, and the player that Damon Bailey was. You know, Damon obviously got more ink back then, and it was real ink back then because there was no internet about how good he was. But uh, And then he had a great career at Indiana. But I want to talk for a second about Pat as a high school player because Pat Graham, really due to injury, we as Indiana University fans never got to see Pat at his peak. And he, when we talked to him on the podcast, he even talked about that, you know, once the injury started, he was just a shell of his former self and never got back and really just got through his career through grit and determination and toughness. But Pat won Mr. Basketball in the year that all those guys went to Indiana, Calbert and Greg Graham and all those guys. How good was Pat Graham in high school? So I can tell you this. If Pat Graham would have stayed healthy, I believe that Pat Graham would have been one of the best NBA players to play the game. Wow. And I'm not exaggerating uh, because this is the reason that I say that, guys. His ability to shoot the basketball was unbelievable. I mean, I, I don't – I can't remember uh, a high school kid being able to shoot the basketball coming off of screens the way Pat Graham did. And back in those days, a uh, little bit different. Uh, the game wasn't uh, – the game was based off ball movement. And I think today the game is really trended towards being able to create off the dribble. Mm-hmm. But the crazy thing was Pat Graham was way ahead of his time because he had both. And and I think that that uh, I think that that puts in perspective uh, where he was in his basketball maturation. Uh, and and guys, you you have to realize that uh, being that Pat Graham was Pat Graham, he got every team's best shot every time he stepped on the floor. And to be able to bring the successes uh, that he had, uh, I think it it speaks volumes about the determination and the grit. Uh, that that was in his chemistry. Well, let's, if we can, do you have something else with Pat? No, no. I would like for you to take us through both of your runs, the first one as a junior to the state finals, and then your senior year winning the state finals when it was still single-class basketball. Like, that is an extraordinary accomplishment. When it was real basketball. Yeah, back back when it meant something. Yeah. 
So how 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 did that you know how did the journey go from getting so close and not sealing the deal? How did that fuel you to get get all the way? I tell you what, it taught me, guys, that uh, you know, getting to that point to to compete for any championship in any sport at any level. Once you get there, you got to have a little bit of luck. Right. That NBA, NFL, NHL, Major League, whatever the sport, whatever the level, if you get to a championship point, you have to have a little bit of luck to get you over the hump. My junior year, we were very unlucky. So my junior year, we were playing uh, Richmond in the uh, morning game, afternoon game. And we were up six points with 30 seconds left. So in our minds, it's a done deal. Yeah. Just so happens, guys, that uh, they had a player. Uh, I don't remember his real name, but his nickname was Boogie. Never will forget <laughs> it. Never will. I mean, guys, I still have nightmares about that to this day. So the Boogie, the boogie uh, guy had never hit a three-point shot the entire season. And lo and behold, in that particular game, he comes down the floor again, guys, there's 30 seconds left. He comes down the floor, top of the key, shoots a three, banks it in. Cut the lead to three. We go down, and at this time, guys, it's probably 17, 18 seconds left. We go down, and instead of holding the thing out and letting the clock run out and going on and hitting free throws and finishing the game, uh, we come down the floor, and we turned it over. And now, wait, sure wait, enough, wait, wait, Sharon, I got to stop you. I got to stop you because I know you're being really nice here and saying we, we, we. But I'm betting I'm betting it wasn't Sharon Wilkerson who turned the ball over. I'm betting it was somebody no, else, and you know his no, name. It actually, it actually was Sharon Wilkerson who it? turned it over. That's why I said we. That's why he was trying to duck it. <laughs> you're trying to duck it. I love it. I love it. It, it pained you. It pained you so much to remember that that you couldn't even put your name to it. You have no idea, guys. No idea, fellas. It was unbelievable. I have never. Uh, so, you know, going from such a high <laughs> yeah. to such a low in such a short period of time, it is, uh, it's an emotional joke, guys. It really is. Wait, so and then uh, what happens? Does Boogie come back down the next time and hit another three? You got it. Oh, Boogie. And, guys, not only did he hit another three, but he banked it in from the same spot. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe that's his shot. I mean, he did it twice. Yeah, man. Guys, it was his shot that day. That's for sure. <laughs> that is for sure. Yeah, did, that's for sure. Did the we game... go into overtime, yeah. we lose by two. Oh, boy. And, uh, you know, guys, I often say, you know, on a serious note, guys, we're living in a generation where I think uh, all parents want the best for their, for their children. Um, I think that... Uh, Parents have a, a meaning of protecting their kids from physical pain, which I completely get and completely agree with. But, however, I believe that when we get to the point to where we're protecting our kids from the pain of life, we inhibit their growth. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, uh, the way our life is set up, the pain of life is what makes us grow. And I just remember uh, walking into that locker room after that game and Everybody was, of course, crying, and coaches was upset. And I mean, man, it was it was very few words that was spoken in that locker room that day. And uh, I got up in the middle of everybody, and I told everybody, I said, "Hey, 
I said, I know everybody's hurt right now. I said, but I promise you, we're coming back, and we're going to finish it. Mm. And if there's anybody in this room that don't believe that, don't come back. Wow. And wow. from that point, and I'm talking guys from that point, day and night, that group of guys, everything that we did was set on getting back to the Hoosier Dome at that time and uh, and finishing what we started. And uh, luckily for us, we were able to do that. Well, they'll talk us through the championship game the following year. What was that like? You no, know, it was a little bit different because uh, the year that we won it, the two older brothers, Joe Estes and Mike Harris, had gone away. Mm-hmm. So we kind of felt like our right arm was missing. Uh, but the thing that those guys did, uh, they stayed in touch. Uh, they came uh, home as much as possible. Uh, they came to as many games as possible. So in an essence, those guys were still there. And, uh, you know, whether people believe it or not, we actually fed off of that. Because for us, we were looking at it as these guys had moved on to bigger and better opportunities, and here they come back to support us on our personal journey. So that, uh, that, that gave us a lot of inspiration. And right now, today, guys, I tell all my kids, you can tell by the way a program is ran by one thing, and that's if the former players come back. If the former players come back, you know that the program is being ran right. And that for us, or I say us because we're still a tight-knit group, that for us was a, a very, very important ingredient uh, to our success. Who did you play in the championship game your senior year? We played Ben Davis. And how how did how did you do in that game? Uh, I think I had 18 points in that game. But the funny thing is, guys, uh, Ben Davis jumped out on his 20 points in the second quarter. Wow! So we were. Uh, <laughs> we used to say, uh, and, and by that time, guys, so much uh, so much pressure had had built up from the previous season. Uh, at that particular moment during that game, that was one of the few times that I felt like there was a chink in our armor uh, because we started uh, arguing amongst each other. Uh, we started uh, pointing the finger at each other. And that was the first time uh, in Coach Broughton's tenure there at Jeffersonville uh, that we had done that. And I specifically remember Coach Broughton calling a timeout and Coach Broughton was completely opposite of Coach Knight. I think in the three years I played for Coach Broughton, he said two cuss words, and both of those cuss words were at me. <laughs> so, so, so his uh, his approach was a little bit different. And I remember him calling a timeout, and he said this. I never will forget it. He said, guys, we've been here before. And he said, now you have two choices. You can either come together, as I've taught you to, and we can dig ourselves out, or you can continue to be individuals, we'll get beat again, and go home losers. Hmm. And from that point, we slowly but surely started to dig ourselves out of the hole, and with about 30 seconds left, we put ourselves in a position to win the game, and uh, we were able to pull it out. Wow. How many times do you think about that when you're driving to work or in the shower? Like it just has to give you a lifetime of of memory that that never gets less fun the more you think about it. 
You know, guys, the older I get, the uh, the more meaningful it becomes. Hmm. Uh, I mean, growing up as a kid, guys, I didn't realize uh, I, I didn't realize the responsibility, if if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, growing up, and j- I was just doing what I loved to do. I didn't realize the people that it touched. Uh, I didn't realize uh, the people that it changed. Uh, I, I, I just wasn't aware of it. And and that in itself uh, was a big piece of, um, of of my failures. And, and guys, I'll be honest with you, um, I don't think about my successes half as much as I think about my failures. Wow. Uh, because I, I think that Success is easy to deal with. I mean, everybody can deal with success, but the real tests come when when you when you have failures. Because typically at that point, one or two things is going to happen: either you're going to accept the challenge and and make the personal sacrifices to deal with those failures, or you're going to let those failures get the best of you. And typically, when the failures get the best of you, uh, it's really hard uh, to to make a comeback. Um, so, when I'm driving to work, guys, and and I drive, I drive to Madison, Indiana, from Louisville every single day. It's about an hour and twenty minute drive each way, so I got a lot of time to think. And and for me, uh, I always ask myself, what can you do today to make an impact? Number one, and then number two, as I answer myself that question, I say to myself, okay. What did you learn? And when I ask myself that question, I start to reflect back on my failures. Right. And well, clearly one of those major failures is the fact that you're living in Kentucky. I mean, what the <laughs> hell is going on? I got I got a wife oh. that is uh, that, that's really serious, guys. I, got... <laughs> I get it. I get it. By the way, speak, speaking as the divorced guy on this call, speaking as the divorced guy, I get it. You're doing fine. Well, well and this is where I see it as a win. This gives Sharon plenty of time to listen to the Hoosier Hysterics podcast. Right. <laughs> like he can knock out an episode uh, in one day. So, Sharon, uh, taking a little bit of a step back, because it obviously happened before you won your state title, when was the first time you came in personal contact with Coach Bobby Knight? So my junior year, we played uh, Shelbyville, Kentucky, Shelbyville County, Kentucky. And they had a guy by the name of Matt Simons who ended up going and playing for the University of Louisville. But he was on Coach Knight's radar uh, as a potential recruit. So it just so happens that that particular night, uh, Coach Knight came down to the game and uh, just so happens that I probably played one of the best high school games I've ever played. Uh, I just remember almost having a triple-double. Nice. And I remember being in the locker room at halftime and an assistant coach coming to me and saying, Bobby Knight's in the stands. And I said, yeah, right. (laughs) He said, no, I'm serious. (laughs) He said, no, I'm serious. And my comment to him was, well, if he is here, he's not here to watch me. And that was the last that I really thought about it until the next morning. And the next morning I get up. And it just so happens that we won the game, and I get up the next morning, and the headline of the Courier-Journal said, Wilkerson makes it a night 
and night was in spelled with K, mm-hmm. makes it a night to remember. Wow. And from that point, that's when all of the talks of, well, Sharon can go to IU and play. Coach Knight really likes Sharon. And, and guys, and even then, I, it really still didn't resonate until uh, my high school coach pulled me to the side and he said, hey, he said, uh, Coach Knight wants to come down here and talk to you. And, uh, guys, I just remember, in fact, it's giving me cold chills as right now. Uh, I just remember at that point, man, I teared up. And uh, it, uh, it, it really started to make sense when he told me that. Wow. And then do, do you remember when he did come down? Do you remember your first meeting with him? I do. Walk us through it. He, uh, so first time I talked to him was over the phone. And uh, it was a little bit different because, uh, man, Coach doesn't put on a show. Coach is genuine. Uh, coach is going to tell you his true feelings. And he's going to tell you exactly what he thinks. And I remember the first phone conversation we had. He said, uh, Wilkerson, I'd like for you to come play for me. And I said, Coach, I said, I'd love to come play for you. And he said, well, I'm going to tell you now. He said, this is going to be probably one of the hardest things that you've had to do. And he said, and if you can't deal with it, I don't need you coming up here. (laughs) So... That was the first conversation that I had from Coach Knight. Okay. And from that point, guys, and at that age, if, if I was given a challenge, I accepted the challenge. And for me, he challenged me, and uh, I wanted to make sure uh, that I answered that challenge. And hence uh, started the ball rolling for Sharon Wilkerson being recruited to Indiana University. When did you – you committed uh... – you committed about a year in advance, right? I think you committed like in September yep. of 92, I think it was. Yep. How did you commit? I mean, did you have the big press conference where you had multiple hats and you decided which hat you were going to wear? <laughs> Who was in your top six? Yeah, exactly. No, no I was a little bit more traditional, guys. I'm, <laughs> I'm a little bit conservative. Uh, <laughs> we, we did have a press conference, but uh, I knew that I wanted to go to Indiana University. So quick story, guys. So at that time, uh, you know, you still had Prop 48. And uh, I hadn't taken my test. Uh, I was scared to death of that test, guys. Could you and, could you tell us what Prop 48 is? We don't recall. Yes. Proposition 48 was basically meaning that she was a non-qualifier. Okay. And Coach Knight at that time, so at that time the NCAA clearinghouse uh, requirements was for you to have a 2.0. And then I think the minimum on the ACT was you had to score a 17, I believe. Okay. And uh, make a long story short, I ended up scoring a 22 on it, so I was well ahead uh, of the curve. Uh, But at the time, uh, I wasn't for sure if I was going to pass it or not, guys. I was scared to death. (laughs) And uh, Coach Knight came to me and he said, I want you to know I will take you whether you pass it or not. Wow. once he said that, guys, that was it for me. Uh, and and you guys, I think that everybody knows uh, how important academics is to Coach Knight. Uh, but he saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. Uh, and once he said that, uh, I was bound and determined uh, not to let him down. Uh, so that was uh, 
that was ultimately uh, I, I just thought that he showed his loyalty to, loyalty to me, and I wanted to do the same in return. Incredible. So your senior year ends, you win the state title, you're McDonald's High School All-American, and you win, you are named Mr. Basketball for the state of Indiana. How important was it for you to win that honor? Uh, then or now? Then, then, at that moment in time, did, did you, because just to take a, a bit of a, a detour here for a second, you seem to be a guy, Sharon, with tremendous perspective on your life, looking back at it. You talk about focusing on your failures and things like that. And I think maybe the perception of you back then was maybe you didn't realize the importance, like you talked about, you didn't realize the state title, how much impact that had on the community and the people around you. Did that, do you, looking back at it at the time, did winning Mr. Basketball for the state of Indiana and representing the state of Indiana mean as much to you as it maybe should have at the time? Not at that time. Right. And this is the reason why. I, I was always taught that uh, strength is in numbers. Uh, my, my high school coach did a really, really good job of, of giving us the foundation of we, us, they, them. Uh, and for me, the Mr. Basketball was an individual award, so it kind of went against everything that I was taught. Now, I was extremely humbled and very honored, uh, but at that time as an 18-year-old kid, who had a very difficult time separating the persona of an athlete from the integrity of a person. I had a really difficult time separating the two. And it, uh, it really clouded my judgment hmm. because I think we live in a society where uh, we have a tendency to put athletes on a pedestal, uh, especially successful athletes. And, um, I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't keep myself grounded as a person, and I, I couldn't differentiate uh, the person from the athlete. And it really caused me a lot of problems, guys. And does that include what happened with the All-Star game? Uh, that was a component of it, yes. Uh, you know, as, as a kid, you, you know, as a kid, man, you, you think that everything is fair. You think that... Uh, Everything is going to go your way. Uh, you, you think that uh, the world revolves around you. Uh, I mean, man, you, you, I, I had a tainted perception. And I, I, I hit some adversity. I had a few roadblocks. Um, some things and some decisions were made that at that time uh, I thought was unfair. And I made, such a, I made such a bad and negligent decision at that time, guys, that uh, that's probably one of the things that I think about the most as a grown man and professional, uh, because I, I didn't understand the magnitude of where I was. Right. I mean, man, I embarrassed myself, my family, my school. I mean, man, the people that supported me, the, the people that went to bat for me, uh, I embarrassed uh, George McGinnis and Damon Bailey and Pat Graham. And I embarrassed a lot of people. And, and I, I, I didn't understand. I, I had no clue. Uh, I mean, I, I was just concerned and only focused on myself and the things that people were saying about me. And I didn't understand the responsibilities uh, that come along with the successes that I was having at that time. 
not to belabor the point, but just to provide context for anybody listening to this that might not know the story. The story, as I understand it, is you were playing in one of these um, Indiana All-Star versus Kentucky All-Star games, uh, which happens at after the high school season is over. This is before yep. you go to Indiana, obviously. And there, in one of these All-Star games, your coach decides to bench you, put you on the bench. You didn't like that. And you did you walk off the, the court at that point or, or something like that happened? And at that point... The Mister the, the the voters for Mister Basketball or the committee decided to strip you of the Mister Basketball in the state of Indiana and give it to the person who was the runner up. Is that a fairly accurate? It, yeah, pretty close. So there was a couple of things, guys. So when it was announced that I potentially had the chance to win Mister Basketball, uh, I had to go up to Indianapolis and do some pictures and and whatnot. So my uh, my high school coach takes me up there, and there was a photographer that I had to, to uh, link up with. And, guys, I just remember, I got in the car with this photographer, and this was the first thing that he said to me. He said, though you didn't deserve it, you got lucky and won Mr. Basketball by two votes. Ooh, so wow. that experience kind of set the tone, or that situation kind of set the tone for that whole experience. So from that point, the next thing that happened, my mom and my grandmother took me up to Indianapolis because when you're in, involved in the Indiana All-Star, it's a two-week process. And both weeks, you and the team get together and the coaches, and you guys go and practice to prepare for the first game. And then the second thing, you, or the second week, you do the same thing, and then you play the second game. One game's in Indiana. The second game is in Kentucky. Right. And I remember going up to my hotel room, at um, in Indianapolis, and guys, I had to wait three hours in the lobby before they would let me in my room. So that was the second experience that I had that didn't set with me very well. And and again, guys, that that it's always two sides to every story. And my perception was that they were against me because I was the kid from Southern Indiana. Hmm. Well, and that's I mean, a so, that's a somewhat common perception, even like talking to Pat Graham and some of the other guys from down there, that there's a real bias uh, in Indianapolis towards the big city players from Indy and central and northern Indiana. That did, did did you carry some of that with you? Had you heard from before, like, oh yeah, they don't like us as much up there? Guys, I'd heard that more than you guys could even possibly fathom. Hmm. I mean, again, they they consider us to be Kentuckiana. And, you know, in the state of Indiana, from a high school perspective, uh, below Columbus South, that is southern Indiana. Right. Uh, I think above, then you got above Columbus to, we'll call it uh, Anderson. In between that area is central Indiana. And then north of Anderson would be northern Indiana. So we were always told that southern Indiana uh, doesn't necessarily get the same uh, opportunities and chances as the uh, central Indiana kids did. So that philosophy or that perception was embedded in my mind. So once the experience is that I had took place, that just kind of embedded in my mind what I had already been been told 
So uh, it was a combination of a couple of things. But, but, guys, I have to be honest. I don't point the finger. I don't put the blame on nobody else. Uh, it was um, it was my responsibilities uh, to, to carry uh, that weight. And, uh, guys, I didn't do a very good job of it at that time. How did you um... – this may be a difficult question to answer, but you talked about how you embarrassed not just yourself and your family, but the players that came before you that won that award, like Pat and like Damon. Did you ever, so much of your life, Sharon, that we're going to get into has been this incredible reconciliation with the past. And were you ever able to reconcile that part of your life? I mean, that's such a weird thing to reconcile. Did you ever have kind of a, I don't know, redemptive event when it came to the Mr. Basketball Award? Because I did read that, like, in years past or in years after that, you publicly said it was the right decision to hand, to give the award to the runner-up, which did seem like a very gracious thing on your part, looking back at it. How, how were you able to kind of deal with that failure, as you put it, uh, in your life? So first let me say this, guys, that, Without my team's success and my teammates, I would have never won Mr. Basketball. I would have never even been in the conversation of Mr. Basketball. Just so happens that I had a really good group of guys around me, and I had a coach that really cared about us as people first. And uh, that Mr. Basketball Award was – just given because of the successes that my team had had. So, I mean, we lost nine games in three years, went to this final four, two years back-to-back, won the state championship. Uh, so it was, you know, for, for me, uh, I got that Mr. Basketball Award because of my teammates. And, uh, guys, I wasn't even the leading scorer on my team my senior year. Huh. I, I mean, so you've you got to put it in perspective, from my perspective, that, again, it's a wonderful honor. But there again, I mean, it's not like I was going out and scoring 50, 60 points a game. I mean, it's not like, you know, I was doing the things that Damon Bailey had done, uh, Pat Graham had done. It was, you know, it was more of a, a collective group accomplishment. Uh, so um, that, that was how I kind of looked at it at the time. And, and for me, guys, that state championship, that's something that will bond myself and my teammates in the community forever. I mean, we, people don't even so much talk about the Mr. Basketball Award as much as they do the state championship. You know, it's it's really difficult to take a group of guys or ladies and, and have them accomplish one goal. Right. Because within that group, each person has their own individual goals. I mean, and I think you see it a lot today in our current uh, athletics. Uh, I mean, but what we have to realize is, is that you're only going to attain those individual goals if the group attains that one goal, and that's to win. Uh, so, um, you know, I was I was brought up a little different, guys, probably. I'm probably a little old school. <laughs> well, what? so you go from, you go from uh, being brought up old school to now playing for maybe the guy that, if you look up old school in the dictionary, there's a picture of Coach <laughs> Bobby Knight. <laughs> And you show up in Bloomington in a really interesting time because you you show up in Bloomington after this run of amazing teams. The prior two years ended in the Elite Eight and the Final Four, respectively. 
there, you know, we have said goodbye to the Calbert Cheney, Greg Graham, Chris Reynolds, uh, you know, team. And now it's kind of this bridge to a new era where you, you walk into a team that does have Damon Bailey, Todd Leary, Pat Graham, and uh, Alan Henderson, and a lot of pressure on that team. What was it like your first practice with Coach Knight? <laughs> I'll take you a step back, please. If you don't mind, please, please. So, so I remember the first time that I had an opportunity to play with the former players you mentioned, Calvert, Greg, Chris. Uh, I walked in. Now, guys, please let me paint this picture for you. Uh, up until that point, I had never. I've never been in a situation, well, let me say this. The last three years, my sophomore, junior, senior year, um, I, I had a lot of successes. So I, I kind of felt untouchable. Hmm. I, I didn't I didn't realize, guys, that, uh, you know, when you're in that position, uh, we have a tendency to think that the rules don't apply. But what I learned is the rules apply even more when you're in that position. Let me say that first. Okay. So when I got to IU – and I had an opportunity to play with those guys. The first thing I said was, where's Calvert Chaney? <laughs> and I said, oh, he's coming. I said, good, because I can't wait to play against him. <laughs> so, sure enough, guys, Calvert shows up, and they started to pick teams. And the guys remember, I'm 18-year-old, little arrogant kid that don't know nothing. And I said, I want to be on the opposite team of him. Oh. <laughs> well, as you guys know, uh, I probably became pretty good at sticking my foot in my mouth uh, because I learned real fast that I wasn't as good as I thought I was. So, uh, so I got a huge taste of humble pie. And uh, after it was over, uh, we played seven, eight games. Uh, and after it was over, I remember Pat Graham, coming over to me, and he said this, you are no longer at Jeffersonville. Check the ego. Get rid of it, or it's going to be bad news for you. Mm. And, uh, I mean, fellas, that that was – I needed to hear that. And, uh, I mean, I think that a lot of people would take that as a knock, uh, but I took it as uh, Pat Graham caring enough about me as a person uh, and caring enough about his teammates and the program uh, that he would come and confront me and tell me exactly what I needed to do. Um, so that was uh, – that was – Did that set up uh, a relationship between you and Pat that continued on? Was he somebody who took you under his wing, or, or were there other players who did? That, all of the players took me under their wing, but I think that – I probably had a special connection to Pat and Damon because we were all Southern Indiana guys. Hmm. I mean, and we all played in the same conference. So it was probably, I mean, again, they all took care of me. But uh, the two of those guys specifically, and Alan Henderson uh, to a certain extent, but those two guys were, I mean, guys, I can't tell you. And at the time I didn't realize it. But as as I got older and I was reflecting and, you know, having conversations with those guys when I ran into them. Uh, I mean, those guys were so instrumental uh, in, in me being a part of, of the IU program and helping me understand what it meant 
to be an IU player. Guys, I had no clue. I was clueless. I was just an inner city kid growing up doing something that he loved to do. Had no idea of the magnitude. And uh, Pat and Damon really, they planted the seed for me to understand what it meant. So now you get to your first official practice with Coach Knight. What is that like? Especially coming from a coach who in your four years cussed maybe three times, two or three times. How, how, quickly, how quickly into that first practice did you exceed that number of two or three cusses? Yeah, that was probably the biggest adjustment that I've ever had to make in my life, even up until this point. Uh, so I just remember this. I remember us being out on the floor warming up at Midnight Madness, and you guys know at that time, it, I mean, Assembly Hall was sold out, yeah. Midnight Madness. And I remember it was so loud because, of course, the players was out on the floor warming up. Coach hadn't came out on the floor yet. He was still in the locker room getting his practice plan together, getting his notes ready. And uh, I just remember it being so loud in Assembly Hall, and then all of a sudden, as soon as Coach Knight walked out on the floor, you can hear a pin drop. <laughs> and, guys, I'm talking about at the – it was a nanosecond. As soon as he came through that tunnel and he stepped between them lines, I mean, guys, that place went dead silent. Wow. And I thought to myself, man, this is unbelievable. I mean, this is a man who absolutely not only commands but demands – respect and uh that was my that was my awakening if you will uh to greatness and uh man I'm, i was so fortunate to have experienced that well it's a, i'm a little confused because i thought you were gonna say then the place got twice as loud when like the rock star coach knight showed up but the crowd went so silent because what they wanted to hear him speak is that that what commanded the silence they wanted to hear what Bobby Knight had to say. And I think that, uh, and guys, that whole practice, the only time that the crowd really even got involved or even gave a, an ovation was when Coach Knight got on one of the players. <laughs> 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 and guys, and you have to remember, guys, we had a huge recruiting class. I think we had five guys in that recruiting class. So we had a bunch of, you know, young, talented freshmen that he was trying to whip into shape and make them understand what it means to be an Indiana University basketball player. And, guys, and I remembered I would never worked so hard in my life. Never. Never had worked so hard in my life other than one other time, and I'll tell you guys that story here in a second. Okay. But there was only one other time uh, that I had worked harder uh, than that day. And, uh, yeah, he co – Coach – he pushes you past the point of being uncomfortable. And uh, at the time, it was the worst thing in the world. Uh, but now as a grown man, I am so thankful that I had him in my life. And now th this, we're talking about this Midnight Madness back then. It was just legitimate practice, right? Like, you guys Legit weren't having dunk contests and three-point no shooting. No dunk contests, no three-point shooting. No, no ESPN. Guys, this was the real deal. This was the real deal. And uh, it was, uh, was eye-opening, to say the least. So let's cut forward just a little bit, because we've talked to now uh, – two people on that team that walked us through the beginning of that year that 
were uh, upperclassmen. They were seniors. We talked to Todd Leary and we talked to Pat Graham. And, and they both talked about how that season started with a loss to in-state Butler. <laughs> and we have gotten their perspective on what happened after that game, in, starting with the bus ride back. What what do you what do you remember from that bus ride, getting on the bus and after that game heading back to Bloomington? What do you remember from that night? I mean, guys, I didn't understand again the magnitude. I didn't understand that Indiana University wasn't supposed to lose to a mid major at Butler. I had no idea. I was clueless. I mean, so now, guys, remember, I just won a state championship and got American Miss Bass. I was riding on top of the world, guys. <laughs> so uh, to come in. Uh, I mean, man, I played a fair amount in that game. And, in fact, uh, I even had a three-point shot in the in the corner to uh, send it into overtime, and I missed it. Mm. And uh, I remember going into the locker room and Coach walking in the locker room and saying, you got ten minutes to get dressing on the bus and we're leaving. I said, uh-oh. <laughs> so, sure enough, I mean, guys, I'd never seen guys pack their bags so fast in my life. And sure enough, guys, we got everybody got on the bus, and I'm sure that it was probably more like four or five minutes than ten. Uh, but man, everybody got on the bus, and I just remember now, guys. Let's put it in perspective here. It's only a 50-minute bus ride from Butler's campus to Indiana University campus, and that bus ride felt like 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, guys, Coach Knight had the film. You know, back in those times, you know, you had the VHS cassette tapes. Yep. And he popped the film in on the bus. He was watching the film, guys, and he was calling guys up one by one to the front of the bus and giving them Coach Knight. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Vintage. Vintage Coach Knight. Vintage Coach Knight. Yes. Did did he uh, call you specifically? Do you remember getting called out in that game? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, sir. And was that your first real run-in with Coach, or had there been – not run-ins, but was it the first time where Coach got on you, or were there times in practice that that mirrored that leading up to that? Uh, I I think in practice it was more motivation. Right. But I think that specific incident was more of a (laughs) attention-getter. Pure, uh, uh, unadulterated rage. No, he got my attention, fellas. <laughs> sure. Todd, Todd Leary, Todd Leary told us that there was a moment before that the bus left, where he says he remembers his mother was outside the bus, and Coach saw him kind of eyeballing him, and they got into it where they were like forehead to forehead, like two rams just nailing each other forehead to forehead on that bus. Do you remember anything of that? I remember it vaguely, but guys, I'll be honest. I was scared to death. I couldn't even. I couldn't even pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> so then, I what, pay attention. then you get down to, to to Bloomington, and now it's time you're going to have a practice. Yeah, doesn't he do the post midnight thing on that day because yes. you couldn't you yes. couldn't practice right because of NCA rules? So he waited till midnight, and then you guys ran your asses off. You got it. <laughs> You absolutely got it, folks. And that what, what, was, uh, was that the most physically uncomfortable you'd been in your life, that practice, at the, up to that point? Up until that point, yes. Yeah, until the next day. <laughs> yeah, you, I mean, guys, it was uh, – so I believe, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, 
that that particular game was on a Saturday. We didn't play again until the following Saturday, and that would have been against Kentucky, and they was ranked one in the country. Exactly, the yes. What <laughs> so, was that week uh, like? Oh, it was, it was brutal. It was brutal. I have to ask, Sharon, you, you mentioned it. You said you won a state title. You're McDonald's High School All-American. You won Mr. Basketball. You're on top of the world. And your first exposure to college basketball is, from what we have heard from many people, the most hellacious that Coach Knight could ever be. The worst week to ever be yes. an IU basketball player. And you're a freshman. Did any part of you at the time think, i got to get the hell out of here? What, what did I sign up for? Did that ever cross your mind? It never crossed my mind at that time to, to get out, but I, I was asking myself, this isn't how I was taught. Right. This is not this is not what I was shown. And guys, and you got to understand that it was so tough because I had had so much success being, uh, being that it was at the opposite end of the spectrum of how coaches approach was. Right. So it was uh, it was more confusing than anything. I mean, guys, I remember walking home that week of practice, and I was literally in tears because I didn't think I could do it. Hmm. I, I didn't think that I could meet the expectations. I mean, so you talking about going from probably the highest that I've ever been to at that time the lowest that I had ever been in a matter of a couple of months. I mean, it was uh, it was overwhelming, guys. And I mean, how like, how did you get through it? Like, was there a person on the team? You mentioned Pat before and Damon. Did someone help you through those times? All of them. I mean, guys, they they had been there, done it. They they had already, for the most part, experienced what I was just experiencing. I think that they could tell that I was really bothered. And uh, you know, it was a uh, it was a different approach because the first experience I had with the guys. It was a tough approach. You got to humble yourself. You got to understand what it takes, what it means. But that week, it was a different approach. You know, it was, uh, hey, look, you got to dig yourself out. This is uh, this is part of the maturation process. This is, you know, this is the learning piece of it. Uh, it, it was more of a more uh, that that was uh, an embrace type of love that I got versus the tough love that I had received previously. And uh, it was exactly what I needed. Mm -hmm. And I remember Damon uh, giving me a ride back to my dorm uh, that week. And, you know, he said, Sharon, man, he said, you got to accept the challenge and you got to step up and you just got to be tough. He was like, man, we'll carry you through it. We'll be there for you. But at the end of the day, you got to carry your weight. I mean, and, and, and that meant so much. I mean, especially coming from him. Right. Uh, I mean, it, it was... It was priceless at that time. Uh, so that, that really helped me get through. And then seven days later, six days later, you play the number one team in the country, Kentucky, in a huge rivalry game. You're from Kentuckyana down there. You're playing Kentucky, number one, your first exposure to this rivalry. It's in the Hoosier Dome. What do you remember from that game? It was on national television on a Saturday afternoon at 12 p.m. prime time. And uh, Coach Knight started two freshmen against the number one team in the country that pressed 38 minutes out of 40. <laughs> Myself and Steve Hart started in the backcourt. 
And I remember coming out in that game so determined, and I had I felt really comfortable because I had just won a state championship on that very floor just a couple of months before. And were you just so, uh, so, so glad that you weren't in practice with Coach Knight and you were sort of safe you, out there for like 40 minutes? You got it. You got it. <laughs> I mean, man, I felt like I was – I felt like I was on an island by myself, guys. I did, me and my teammates. I, that's what I felt like. And it was, I mean, there was no fear. There was no uh, apprehension. Uh, I mean, at that point, for whatever the reason, I felt like I belonged. Hmm. And, uh, you know, feeling like you belong and, and having that confidence, uh, it, it, it puts you in a different mindset. And uh, I just remember going out and saying, you guys ain't beating us today. And I don't care if you're number one team in the world. You are not coming out of here with a win. And uh, sure enough, we were able to uh, to pull it out. When we talked to Kent Benson uh, several months ago, Kent talked about how one of the, the things that was genius about Coach Knight was that the practices were so hard and so demanding that the games were a vacation. That that, that 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 you know when you got to a game you looked forward to it like you weren't nervous like you just talked about the practice was the thing to be nervous about the game was fun I, I think two reasons for that guys uh, the, the first reason being uh, that's one of the reasons that coach Knight always had a different starting five each game I don't know if people realize that or not but typically the starting five for coach Knight always shifted. And the reason for that was because he rewarded you by starting you by how you performed that week in practice. And he used to always say that everybody wants the glory that comes along with being an IU basketball player, but there's been very few that want to go through the preparation that it takes to be an IU basketball player. And he firmly believed that the games were an extension of practice. And if you guys remember, in that 76-year season when they went undefeated, all of the players unanimously agreed that the toughest opponent they faced that year was each other in practice. That's right. Yep. And I believe that that was a huge factor in those guys being able to go undefeated. I mean, guys, I'm not for sure that it, it, it takes a lot to go through any season at any level and go undefeated. I mean, the determination, the discipline, the commitment, the unselfishness, it requires a lot to be able to get that done. That's why it hadn't been done since. Right. I mean, so I, I think that uh, if, if you listen to Coach's beliefs and his approach and his philosophies, it has a it makes a lot of sense because, uh, I mean, obviously got the results. If, if you could, because we've covered some of it already, uh, I think, you know, psychology, preparation, if there's something you could share with us to give us some insight on what made Coach arguably the greatest mind the game has known, what what's something maybe people don't think about in terms of his approach that was so effective that normally you're not going to see or hear somebody talking about during a game? Uh, I'm not for sure about this guy, but at one point, I firmly believe that Coach Knight had a photographic memory. Mm. 
I don't know if he does, uh, but through my personal experiences, and that's uh, in athletics and outside of athletics, uh, he was – I've been blessed. I've, I've been able to meet a lot of people. He's probably one of the most intelligent men that I've ever met. And he uh, he just had such a great understanding of the game. And not only did he have a great understanding of the game, but he also had probably even a better understanding of his opponents. Hmm. And there, there's, there's one thing. So keep in mind, guys, that I, I came from a high school program that averaged 90 points in 32 minutes to a college program that barely scored 70 in 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. So I go to Indiana University from a up-tempo style of play to a motion offense. And at that time, that was probably the biggest adjustment for me as a player. Uh, but what I didn't realize is is that every offensive philosophy and offensive set that is out there today in the game is embodied within the motion offense. So if you can run a motion offense, you can play within any system out there. Hmm. And that was the – initially it was a curse for me, but that curse quickly turned into a blessing once I understood what coach was teaching. And it didn't take me very long, guys. I was a, a really good student of the game. I had some great teachers. Uh, and at that time, as coach was teaching, I also had teammates – that was, you know, showing me film and showing me what to look for. And, I mean, it, it just all came together as one. And, uh, I mean, it, it. I don't think I've ever met a coach that has the basketball IQ that Bobby Knight has. Not many people have, especially <laughs> the two people you're talking to right now, which is why I'm going to ask this non-IQ question. If you, if you combined our basketball IQs, Eric and I's, and multiplied them by 10 – it would be about a third of Coach Knights. Right. That's even, I think, giving us some credit. But here's the question that we want to know. So you grew up in Kentucky, Anna. You were rooting for Louisville, but now you're playing for Indiana. Ward and I have, as much as we love Indiana, which is off-the-charts love, we have equal hate for Kentucky and Purdue. When, and really everyone else, but really those two, did you – adopt the hatred of our rivals the second you, t- you you took the court at Assembly Hall? Or did you ever develop that hatred, and how did it come about for you? Guys, honestly, when I played, I hated them all. Yeah. That wasn't, I mean, it wasn't any particular team. Uh, I, if you was on the opposite side of me, I wanted to get you. I think that in itself is a huge ingredient in what separates uh, good players from great players. It's, uh, you know, for me, it's not the opponent as much as it is the game. And I want to make sure that my opponent understood, even if you had an opportunity to beat me, it was going to be one of the hardest, toughest battles that you ever had to go through. And that's just the approach that I always took. And, uh, Fortunately for me, it worked out, but, guys, it was just – I just want to beat you in everything, in the races, in the drills. and I mean, guys, if a car passes me, I got to pass you back. It's just a competition. I mean, man, it's just a competition. And that is uh, – I mean, I, I feed off competition. I mean, I think that it's, it's what makes 
competition is what makes life evolve. I mean, man, and if there is no competition, then we don't get better. We can't move forward. Uh, so now it's not malicious competition. I don't wish harm. I don't wish uh, anything bad, uh, but I want to win. I mean, and if you beat me, then I want to play you again right now. That that was the mentality that I had. So uh, it, it it was all of them, guys. It just wasn't one or two. It was all of them. So your freshman year is filled with um, some really big wins mixed in, obviously none bigger than beating Kentucky, number one in the country on national TV, but a lot of really good wins throughout that year. But I want to cut to something that I'm sure you are uh, somewhat tired of talking about, but we're going to hit it a little bit. On March 9th at Michigan State in a tough game, you are playing in the game. You're brought to the bench. Coach Knight is angry. You're sitting on the bench, and Coach Knight – comes at you, not happy about something that happened, and if you remember what the something was, we'd love to hear it, and your heads oh, yeah. <laughs> your heads collide. I'm not going to call it a headbutt because that means he tried, but your heads collided. Everybody can go to YouTube and see the moment. The look on your face afterwards, Sharon. <laughs> the, the eyes widening. The eyes widening, the leaning back, the what the hell is going on here. Walk us through, all these years later, walk us through that moment, what led up to it, and what you were thinking in the moments after. So with Coach Knight, guys, each week of, of preparation, uh, he would always have a, uh, uh, a saying, if you will, or a quote for that week of preparation. And that particular week, the quote was, no excuses. Whatever happens, we're just going to push through it. We're going to accept the challenge. We're going to deal with the adversity, but there's no excuses. Well, just so happens. And at that time, guys, I think I was starting pretty regularly at that time and uh, was playing pretty well. And uh, I remember I took a shot at the top of the key. And, guys, you got to remember that uh, Michigan State was really good yeah. at that time. Yeah. Sean Respert, Eric Snow, uh, those guys were loaded. And uh, I remember I took a shot at the top of the key, and being that, you know, uh, Sean Respert was the veteran that he was at that time, he did a whole school trick, and as I went to shoot it, he raised up like he was contesting the shot, but as he raised up to contest the shot, he tapped my elbow. Old school trick. Mm-hmm. And when he tapped my elbow, it knocked my shot off course. The shot fell short, was an air ball, went out of bounds. So as we're turning back around to get back on defense, Alan Henderson said, what happened? And I tapped my elbow. I said, man, he hit my elbow. Well, I just violated what the quote of the week was. No excuses. So right when I did that, the next thing I know, in the game for the Indiana Hoosiers, number 23. And here I come getting subbed out. And I already knew, guys, as I was getting subbed out, running over to the bench, I was like, Sharon, this is not going to be good. (laughs) This is not. So I sat down to prepare myself, and it just so happens that as I sat down, I dropped my head for a couple of different reasons because I was so disappointed in myself, number one. And number two, I felt like I let my teammates down and my coaches down. And then number three, I knew I was going to get it. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, so uh, coach comes over and uh, 
he bends down. Now, you guys have to remember, and when I tell the story, people say, oh, you're just making excuses. No, I'm not making excuses. I'm merely giving you the facts. Uh, at that time, Coach had some issues with his back. Now, Coach does a lot of fishing, a lot of hunting, guys. So he's, he's fairly active. And uh, he was having some issues with his back. So because I had my head down, he bent down to make sure that I got the message. And uh, when he bent down, we conked heads. And, uh, and guys, I remember it like it was yesterday, of course. Uh, the look that I gave was, I can't believe that you just headbutted me. But at the same time, I can't believe that you just headbutted me. I mean, so, it was, uh, so, and guys, I have to be honest, I never thought, I never viewed it the way that the public viewed it. Right. I mean, even after it happened, uh, and guys, I, I, I got home that night from, from Michigan State, and I got home and my voicemail was full. I mean, ESPN, the news, I'm, every news organization, I mean, fans, you can't let him do that to you, and you should do this, and you should do this, and you should do that. And I was like, man, this is crazy. <laughs> I thought to myself, that is my coach, number one. Number two, if he felt like I needed a headbutt, and guys, I'm going to be honest with you, at that age and at that time, I needed a lot worse than a headbutt. <laughs> I mean, so that, in my mind, guys, it was just a form of tough love. I mean, so it, it did, and even today, guys, it's still, I mean, it. I just never thought that it was intentional, and I never thought it was with any intent to hurt me. I, I never thought that. Did, and, uh, did, did Coach ever, was there ever any conversation about it within the team or between you and Coach Knight after it happened? Unfortunately, yes. Because I don't know if you guys remember this or not, but uh, I can't remember. It might have been the Wisconsin game. Yeah, the next nope. game. No, the next game is when I headbutted him. Yes, exactly. I thought that was the Wisconsin game. That wasn't? I think that was the Wisconsin game. Yeah. But I think leading up to the Wisconsin game, Coach was getting a lot of pressure uh, from the critics and the media. They, they wanted answers. And, guys, I remember getting pulled out of class. And they the media wanted to talk to Pat Knight and I because – just before the, the headbutting incident, uh, Coach Knight had kicked a chair, yes. and people swore yeah. up and down that he kicked Pat. Right. Mm -hmm. So within like a two-week period there, there was a couple of incidents that happened, and people were really on Coach. So the media wanted to talk to Pat and I. They literally pulled Pat and I out of class. And I remember going down to Assembly Hall, guys, and the Assembly Hall, the parking lot, was just media for as far as you could see. And I told Pat, I said, man, there ain't no way that I'm going in here, man, and throwing my coach under the bus. I'm not doing it. So, and Pat's comment was to me was, man, you say what you feel. I said, okay, I'll say what I feel. Because I think there was some talks about him firing coach. Wow. And for me, guys, if you fire my coach, you firing me. And I'm done. Right. I mean, and that was that was kind of the message 
that was sent. I mean, man, this is our family. What happens in our family stays in our family. If I thought that it was something that was wrong or something that was malicious or meant to hurt me, you can believe that I would let you know, but I never thought that. So, uh, I mean, it was something that was addressed, and uh, I'm not for sure if people took it as being genuine, but I can tell you that it was straight from the heart. It was an honest assessment. And for me, uh, the way that I thought that could relieve a little bit of uh, the misperception was to give him a headbutt back. <laughs> and uh, thank God it ended up working out in my favor. <laughs> so yeah, walk, us, walk us through that, because it's such a great thing, Sharon, that, that doesn't get talked about nearly enough. In, in fact, I think it's... I put it on the same level, maybe even more so, as a few years earlier, just a couple years earlier, when he got in trouble for doing the whip thing in the press conference with Calbert Cheney. And then Calbert whipped him with the towel on the bench. Yes, Cheney whipped him with the towel. And it was like this moment where it's like all you media that just want to kill the guy because that's what you do, you have no idea what's going on in the inner dynamic of the team. And, And you... Like the next game, walk us through that. You playfully headbutted him. How did that come to be? Did he know it was coming? How did you have the stones to do that? Like, just tell us, <laughs> walk us through it. Get, walk us through that moment. So, so guys, I was I was so irritated. Uh, I, w- I was so angry. I'm, I'll be honest. I was angry uh, that he was catching the flat that he was catching. I mean, man, it, it really bothered me. And, guys, remember. I was given the foundation. Uh, I mean, you, you stick together, thick and thin. I mean, no matter how bad it gets, man, you stay together. And uh, I, I just felt like he was getting a raw deal. And uh, that, that week, I, I was so frustrated. I was, I was dealing with a lot of things personally in my personal life about it. Uh, I mean, man, it just, I mean, it literally just almost ate me up. And uh, I went to Dockage because I was having such a difficult time. And I said, Coach, I said, man, what can I do? And he said, you do what you think is best, Sharon. And I said, okay. I said, I think what's best is is that I headbutt him back. <laughs> and Dockage looked at me with this puzzled look. He was like, headbutt him back? I said, yeah, I'll show you. And that's how I left it with Dockage. So in that game, in that game, it just so happens, guys, that I played, you know, I played fairly well. And uh, he pulled me out to sub me. And uh, people were, of course, the fans were cheering and, you know, acknowledging that I had played well. And he was standing there. And, and with Coach Knight, he Coach wasn't the positive type poly guy. And his philosophy was that I'm not patting you on the back for you doing something you're supposed to do. Hmm. So that particular game I played so well, as I was coming out of the game, coach had got up off the bench to receive me and pat me on the head and tell me good job. So before he could pat me, I grabbed his head, reached up and head butted him. And, uh, he started smiling. (laughs) And guys, I gotta be honest with you, man, that, Coach, again, he never, you know, said a whole lot of positive things. But when you got a smile from Coach, that was probably the greatest reward uh, that you could get from him. 
And, uh, yeah, that was – so I knew that I was okay when he gave me the smile. So to put it uh, in perspective as far as the guy who who went through all of that as a player but also as his son – what was you, you you mentioned this thing that had uh brought you and Pat Knight together through the supposed shin kicking that was really the chair and the headbutt whether it was intentional or not what what started your connection with Pat what was your connection with Pat at IU why did you two find each other and and really have a connection that obviously went on well beyond your playing days you know, guys, I, I think one of the things that I've often thought about with Pat, I mean, guys, just imagine growing up and Bobby Knight being your father. I can't. There is no way. I right? cannot imagine that. I mean, right? I mean, especially at the height of his at the height of his coaching career. I mean, just imagine being one of his sons. And I, I think what drew Pat and I together, uh, Pat was kind of the misfit, if you will. And, of course, everybody knows that I was the misfit. I mean, so we just kind of instantly connected. I mean, from the day that I stepped on campus, I mean, I told you how instrumental, you know, all those guys were to me, and Pat was another guy. I mean, we just instantly connected. I mean, and, and from that point, guys, and, and hopefully we can talk about it here, but, uh, I mean, man, after I got kicked out of IU, Pat Knight was really the one that resurrected my career. Uh, not only did he resurrect my playing career, but he resurrected my coaching career. Uh, so I think that puts in perspective – uh, how tight and how close uh, Pat Knight and I were. Uh, I mean, man, it was uh, it was amazing. I mean, man, and, and understand the position that he's in because Coach Knight had made a decision about me, and uh, Pat kind of went against that decision and gave me an opportunity that probably went against what Coach would probably have felt at that time. Right. So, uh, I mean, man, I, I think it speaks volumes about his loyalty to me but not only his loyalty to me, but also to be able to tell coach, hey, coach, this is one of our guys. Yeah, I know that he made some mistakes. I know that he put himself in a tough spot, but he, I think he fixed it and he's addressed it. I'm going to give him another opportunity. And, uh, I mean, that was that was priceless, guys. Well, and I do think we want to get more to that after we get through your Bloomington days, but I thought it was important to establish why you and Pat had a connection while you were there, and we'll get the payoff here later, but I, I think moving on... Yeah, I, I can't wait to get into that stuff. Going through... Well, I'll tell you guys this. Uh, let me tell you this. So, when I very first got... When Pat very first hired me at Lamar, we were up in Indianapolis recruiting, and of course, you know, Painter and all those guys was around. And Painter walked up to congratulate me, and Painter said, how about this? The only two guys that get kicked off the IU basketball team is coaching together. <laughs> that is great. That is great. <laughs> so that probably probably was the one of many things that really brought Pat and I together. <laughs> That's wonderful. So let's uh, move forward in your, in your freshman year. Uh, you guys make the NCAA tournament. Uh, you're now experiencing your freshman year NCAA tournament basketball. You win the first round game, and now you're playing Temple in the second round game. And your first just kind of major athletic piece of adversity hits you. Uh, what can you walk us through? What happened in that Temple game to you? 
So uh, that week in practice, I had uh, I had been having some, I don't know, some knickknack injuries. I mean, it was a long season, guys, and you know, playing at that level, it it takes a toll on your body. And uh, you know, I, I really didn't uh, do a very good job of protecting myself. Uh, didn't stick to the, the the stretching regimen. Really didn't stick to uh, you know the therapy regimen per se. You know, I just kind of pushed and toughed my way through it. Well, that week preparing for the tournament. Uh, my left leg really started to bother me. And, of course, uh, I mean, I wasn't setting out, guys. I mean, it's the tournament. And we had a we had a really, really good chance that year of, of winning the whole winning the whole championship. And, obviously, you're not in that position uh, very often. Right. Uh, so, that being said, uh, you know, I kind of pushed my way through it a little bit. And then uh, we got to uh, Maryland, and uh, it was – still bothering me you know we practiced prepared ourselves i pushed through it uh and then going into the game uh, i just remember warming up thinking to myself man this is not good i mean because you know my a big part of my game was you know athleticism speed quickness ability uh so being that you know i was i was having issues uh it was i mean it was on my mind real bad so um we got into the game and, you know, I was still having problems. But once my adrenaline got going, you know, it kind of dissipated a little bit. And then I remember uh, Coach Knight was going to sub me. Play was still going on. Um, I was at the top of the key getting us into an offense. And uh, Eddie Jones uh, stole the ball from me. Now, one of Coach Knight's biggest, biggest, <laughs> I mean, the thing he did not like the most was if somebody stole the ball from you. You better be the first one back on defense. <laughs> so uh, Eddie stole it from me. And, guys, I'll be honest, I was so angry that he stole it from me. I turned around, and I took off, and I told myself, man, I am going to swipe this thing right off the glass when he goes and tries to dunk it. So sure enough, I chase him down. I get my steps ready, and I take off to go challenge the shot. And uh, right when I took off, man, that thing snapped. Mm. And, uh, man, I never felt pain like that before in my life. And I guess that it was so loud. I mean, literally, I mean, Eddie was in the middle of finishing the shot. And no sooner than the ball came through the net, no sooner than he landed, he was bending down to see if I was all right. And, uh, I mean, by that time, of course, guys, I just I kind of went into shock a little bit. Uh, I mean, man, I, everything was really fuzzy. Uh, so I, I probably laid on the floor probably maybe 10 minutes. And then once they got me back uh, to the locker room, of course, it was the NCAA tournament. So it was, you know, a bunch of specialists there. And I remember guys laying on that, uh, laying on the on the hospital bed in, in the back and uh, had all these doctors, you know, sitting around my table. They had taken an x-ray of my leg and they uh, they put the x-ray up to the light to look at the damage that was done. And, of course, I'm laying there, and, and I'm asking, what's the score of the game? Hmm. I mean, I'm really not even concerned. What's the score? What is the score? That's all I keep asking. What's the score? What's the score? And finally, a doctor said, son, he said, you shouldn't be worried about the score. He said, you may never walk again. Oh, God. And I said, what? I said, I may not ever walk again. And, fellas, I, I'm the most respectful young man as I could possibly be. Uh, but that was one of the days that I was probably disrespectful. And I told the doctor, I said, doctor, I said, you crazy. 
I said, not only am I going to walk again, but I'm going to play again. And guys, I did not realize the uh, the challenge that I had ahead of me uh, at that point. And uh, it changed. Uh, that was a uh, life-changing moment. That's for sure. So now you're, it becomes pretty apparent pretty quickly that you're not going to be able to recover in time for next year and you redshirt your next year. Yep. We've talked to several players who have gone through year-long red shirts and injury rehabs and how not not the physical kind of rehab, but mentally what it does to you and how difficult that is. This is your first kind of catastrophic injury in your career. What was it like for you mentally that during that rehab process? Uh, man, I thought my life was over, guys. I was... Uh... I dealt with some severe depression uh, for about two years of that experience. Um, and I, I'm not for sure that I didn't even realize the impact that it had on me. Uh, but uh, it was tough. Fellas. I mean, at that, at that particular time, the only thing I really had in my life was, was basketball. I mean, man, it's what I had known. It's what I had worked so hard for. I mean, I built my whole life around this game. And, uh, to, you know, to be told that you'll never walk again and you'll never play again if you do walk. Uh, I mean, man, that was, I mean, my world was over. Uh, I mean, man, and I was living my life as such. I mean, you know, you're talking about a 19, 20-year-old kid that, uh, I mean, man, and at that time it was even some talks about me, you know, being able to play in the NBA. Uh, I mean, man, that, you know, and obviously that's every basketball player's dream. Uh, so, I mean, man, to be so close and to have it yanked away from you at, at the drop of a dime, it is, uh, it's overwhelming. And, uh, of course I, I didn't, uh, I mean, other than my family, my immediate family, I didn't have the support group that I needed to be able to deal, uh, with something like that at that particular time in my life. I didn't know anybody that was close enough to me that I could go to that, you know, could really, really set me down and give me the reality and the information that I needed to deal with it. Uh, you know, Pat obviously had been through some things and, you know, he helped, uh, but Pat couldn't be there all the time. I mean, so it was, uh, it was a really, really difficult, uh, difficult time in my life. Um, so it, uh, I think that it, it literally changed the course of my life and it's oxymoron because it changed it for the worse but it ended up changing it for the best. You talked about uh, dealing with some depression during that time. Was that something you felt comfortable talking to anybody about? Were you talking to Tim Garl about it? Uh, was it something that you were trying to get professional help for, or were you just in such a dark place that you were just dealing with it all internally? I, I, was, in a very, I was in such a dark place that I just dealt with it internally because for me at that time, if I showed, if I, told anybody I needed help it was a sign of weakness and I didn't want to show any signs of weakness so uh, and during that time I was obviously really busy with rehab so I'd go to rehab and I put on f smile and I put on the the face and say the right things and man then I would go back to my apartment man and I would cry 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 I mean fellas it just went on for it seemed like forever uh I mean man that was a uh yeah, I mean, man, it's like, you know, that it was literally like taking my whole life away from me. 
I mean, so the, I, I wasn't socializing. I wasn't keeping myself busy. I, I would go to rehab and go right back to my apartment. And again, man, it was just, I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. Uh, and again, I didn't want to tell anybody that I needed help right. uh, because, you know, it was, you know, that's a sign of weakness. You're a man. Stand on your own. Be tough. I mean, man, this is what I kept telling myself. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it was probably the second uh, lowest that I've ever been in my life. At that point, it was the lowest. Right. Uh, but obviously, looking back, it was the second lowest point of my life. Um, I, I want to skip ahead to, to tie this moment and dealing with this to, to something that's going on in your life now, which is, you know, we're now 20 years after that. You deal on a daily basis with young kids. You're uh, a yep. high school coach. Any yep. article you read about depression and where we are as kind of an, a society, there are more incidents of depression, especially amongst young people. Suicide amongst young people is higher than it's ever been. Going through what you went through and knowing how dark it got for you, when you're working with these young kids, are you more uh, in tune with things going on in their lives and trying to help them if you notice that something is happening with them and, and trying to coach them, not on the court but off the court, that it is not a sign of weakness to ask for help but, in fact, a sign of strength? Well, guys, that's ultimately the reason that I coach. Uh, I don't coach basketball. I use basketball because I know basketball and teaching kids with basketball, it allows me to gain their trust. Once I gain their trust, then they listen to me in every part of their life. Uh, so, uh, and one of the things that I try to do, I, I try to explain to kids that the world is unfair. The world is unfair. Not only is it unfair, but it's going to go against you in every way possible. And if you haven't prepared yourself to be able to deal with it, it's going to put you in a tough spot. Now, just because you're going through a tough phase, we've got your back, we support you, we will help you. But at the end of the day, you got to make sure that you're putting yourself in a position to be successful. And, you know, for me, guys, it, it gives me a lot of credibility because more often than not, I share my failures with my kids and not my successes. Right. And typically when I do that, it really grabs their attention. So it's, uh, as I said before, guys, it's been a blessing and a curse at the same time. So your rehab is hard. It's long. You miss that year. And then uh, you you are ready to come back for the 95-96 season, which is also uh, a time that perfectly coincides with another major event in Indiana University history. Uh, a major disappointment. A major disappointment, which is when Eric Pankowski decides that he's going to attend Indiana <laughs> University, and his freshman year is 1995, the 96 season. He's coming in to be on the telecom team. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and... I, I will tell you, I want to share this, Sharon, because I think it um, I think it'll mean something uh, when we get to kind of, I think, what you were referring to as your second lowest point. But I went to Indiana University because my parents went to Indiana University. My uncle went to Indiana University. I grew up a Hoosier fan. I grew up a Hoosier. And my biggest connection to Indiana was, of course, the basketball program. I wanted to go to every single game. Everything meant something to me there. And at that time, we had... On the team, it was Brian Evans was going into his senior year, and you were coming back from your injury. And I knew you as McDonald's High School All-American, and you're back, and you had a year to just kind of, 
you know, because we don't know anything. I'm thinking, wow, he got a year to get stronger, and he studied the game, and you were going to be my guy throughout my career. Like, I was so excited to watch you play. I watched you your freshman year, and I was just so excited that you were back from the injury. So I'm excited. I'm a freshman. I'm 18. The season starts, and you what, – what was it like for you coming back from that injury? Were you – Anywhere close to 100%? Were you worried about the leg? Just walk us through kind of the mentality of where you were at the beginning of that year. So initially, uh, I tried to come back too early. I was dead set on beating that clock and playing my sophomore year. I pushed the medical personnel. I pushed the doctors. I pushed Tim Garl. I pushed them all because I was dead set on playing. Well, it just so happens that uh, I came back a little too early. Uh, when I went through my surgery, I went through four surgeries during that year and a half. And the second surgery, actually the first surgery, they put a metal rod in my leg, but they didn't put any screws at the bottom of it. So when I came back with that metal rod in it, because of my pounding and because of the activity that I was doing, the metal rod actually bent inside of my bone. So my whole leg started to bow because of the pressure that I was putting on it. And guys, I was still dead set on beating that deadline. Well, make a long story short, uh, they had to go back in. They had to take the metal rod out that was bent. They had to put another metal rod in. And this time they put two screws at the bottom of it. But what they also did was because of uh, my leg, uh, because of the bone that had bowed, they actually cut two centimeters of my bone off in order to get that rod to be screwed in. So I didn't realize it at the time, guys, but it uh, it caused me a whole lot of problems. Yeah. And uh, once I did get back and was able to play, uh, I probably at that time was probably at about 65, 70%. Wow. Uh-huh. So to be able to come back and, you know, still play at that level at about 65, 70%, uh, I thought was a huge accomplishment, but yeah, no, I'm sorry, guys. I was going to say, but it wasn't the same. So I was still, I was still reeling, you know, dealing with some, with some depression. It was tough. Well, and I, I have just such this searing, memory of you at that time with that giant brace that you the 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 leg brace that you wore that became like something that was just seared into my memory when I think of you in an Indiana uniform I think of that brace on your leg but you also that year starts and Sharon you're playing 30 minutes a game you're averaging seven and a half points three and a half rebounds over three assists a game I mean you're stuffing the stat sheet you are just a crucial member of that team and it was I also remember this because it was my freshman year. It was a brutal, brutal non-conference schedule. You played in that non-conference, Duke, Yukon, Kentucky, Kansas, wow. in the non-conference yep. schedule, and unfortunately yep. lost to all four of them. But yep. those were four of the best teams in the country. And That's we, right. again, Brian Evans was the senior captain, but we had lost Alan Henderson, you know, the Baileys, the Cheneys. They're all behind you. You're coming back from injury. We're a young team with the exception of Evans. And you're playing really well. Against Kentucky, you have 10 points, 7 assists. Against Wisconsin, 10 points. Against Illinois, 10 points, 4 assists. 
you're you're at sixty five percent, which is just shocking to me to hear you say that now. But are you in pain at this point? Do you feel like you've found a way to to make it work? Because from the outside in, you're playing pretty well. So at that point, uh, my positive attributes was no longer my athleticism. Now it was the understanding of how to play the game of basketball. And that's one of the things that I often reflect upon is, you know, if, if I could have had that athleticism with the understanding that I attained, what could I, I have accomplished? And obviously uh, that will be a question that will never get answered. Uh, but it's something that uh, actually still haunts me to this day. And I, uh, I try my best to uh, turn it into a positive energy in dealing with my kids. And, uh, you know, I, I share that as much as I can um, because it was uh, – you talking about a guy, as I said earlier, guys, with a 43-inch vertical that went from a 43-inch vertical to barely being able to dunk a basketball. So it was, uh, it, I mean, it, it it was a really difficult, difficult transition. And if, if uh, you know, looking back, you know, I was a point guard for Coach Knight in the motion offense. And, you know, it's uh, that motion offense is obviously, as you guys know, it's, uh, it's really based in the team concept. And, uh, you know, to, to have had the success that I had at that point, uh, I mean, it, it I couldn't even enjoy it because I was, you know, not in the right mindset, if you will. Sure. So it was, uh, it was bittersweet per se, if if you will. So now let's get into a little bit of a, a touchy area. Uh, you played 17 games that year. You're playing pretty well. Your stats are pretty good. The team's had some ups and downs, obviously. It was a really tough non-conference schedule. But then on January 19th, early in the morning on Friday, around 3 a.m., the police are called in Bloomington, I believe, to the Varsity Villas uh, complex. And you are uh, taken away and arrested. Um, what I want to get into the fallout of that, but what do you want to say about that incident and, and what happened and what was running through your mind when whatever happened became public? So at that time, that was probably one of the few positives in my life was my relationship with my girlfriend at the time. And, uh, you know, dealing with my personal uh, depression as an athlete and as a person, because it spilled over into my personal life. Uh, that was the only positive that I had going at that time. And then uh, once that fell apart, I fell apart completely. And uh, and I, I, I put myself... Uh, in a really, really bad spot. Uh, and again, I'm not pointing the blame on anything or anybody. Uh, it was my decision, my choice. And uh, I, I made a really bad error in judgment. And, uh, you know, I had to suffer the consequences for it. But, Eric, this is what I'll tell you. Yeah. Uh, that incident, along with the leg incident, it, uh, it saved my life. Uh, because if... I had have reached that pinnacle of the NBA in the mindset that I was in at that time. Uh, I'd probably be dead or in jail right now. Well, so, uh, right. So the immediate consequence of that is obviously, uh, well, there's two immediate consequences. The first is you're in jail. And, that's right. Uh, what, 
was that like, Sharon? Uh, what I mean, I mean, what what is going through your head at that time? My life is over. Never going to be able to recover from this. I mean, and, and there again, around about that time is when it kicked in uh, the magnitude of the responsibilities that I had. That's about the time that it kicked in. At the lowest point, at the time that it's over, that was the that was when it all started to resonate. And of course, by that time, it was too late, guys. Well, for Sharondi athlete. And and is this coming to terms with where your life is at now, at the lowest of lows? Is part of what you're learning that you are going to have to figure out who you are away from the game of basketball? Uh, Yes. Yes. I think that I had to, I had to fix Sharon the person before I could focus on Sharon the athlete. Because that is, go ahead, guys. Well, I was just going to say at that, that point, you know, maybe from eighth grade on, as we've been talking, we haven't talked a lot about what, if anything's going on in your personal life, but how can your identity to yourself not be just completely wrapped up in what you do on the basketball court? And as a first, a high school basketball player and now representing Indiana university, so that it all gets torn away and you're dismissed from the team. Let's talk about that. How did how did that go down? Well, for me, it felt like I went from the hero to the villain. I mean, guys, you, I mean, man, growing up, you know, I had all the support fans, people cheering for you, telling you how great you are and you man telling you how wonderful you are. You're going here. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. Well, when that happened, it was the complete opposite everywhere I went. Everybody, I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, and it was like in an instant. I mean, so, and it, uh, I'm not for sure that the average person understands how it affects you, but I, I can, the best way that I could put it in perspective is think about all the former athletes or professional athletes that struggle with life after their careers are over. Right. I mean, man, it is, uh, it literally, it's a different deal, guys. I mean, man, and I, you know, I was at that point now, obviously not to the point of professional athletes, but for me, that was my profession. So it was, uh, yeah, it was life changing. And I wasn't for sure that my life was ever going to be the same again. When did you find out that Coach Knight had dismissed you from the team and how was that communicated to you? Uh, I found out, uh, I got out of uh, jail that day. I went home. And of course, I was scared to death. Uh, man, I got to tell Coach Knight, my mama, I got, I got a whole lot of explaining to do. And I uh, go home, and I sat down. I was hungry, so I got me something to eat. I turned the TV on, and it was on every news station out there. And of course, from that point, I uh, reached out to uh, Ron Fellin, the assistant coach, to confirm what I was hearing was true. And of course, it was. Did and, you? Uh, you know. I think looking back, I wish that I would have went back and stayed and fought it and dealt with the embarrassment. And I mean, that really showed coach how much I wanted to be part of Indiana. Uh, but I mean, fellas, I was in such a dark place. I just wanted it to be over. And in fact, uh, it was one of the, it was the only time there after that period, probably for about two months 
I mean, man, the thought of, you know, the thought of, man, do I really want to be living this life? That really crossed my mind. Hmm. And I had never, ever been in a mindset like that or even come close to thinking like that. But at that particular time, uh, that crossed my mind more times than you realize. And I assume at this point, once Coach Felling told you, yes, it was true, you did not have any conversations with Coach Knight after that, correct? No, nope, not at that point. I did not. Um, did so, not. So I want to go to a personal thing that, that's a little trivial, but I think it, it speaks to kind of a fan's reaction. But before that, I don't want to skate over this part because it's, uh, it's an ugly but unfortunate part of this. There is a true victim in this story, which was your girlfriend uh, at the time. Were you able to ever reconcile with her? Did you ever have ever have any conversations with her after that moment? Oh, yeah. We dated for, in fact, uh, I dated her and I met my wife uh, three years later. <laughs> I dated her for three more years after that incident. And in fact, guys, uh, I mean, man, they were, so it was ironic because uh, I mean, man, she was a, a white lady, young white lady. And it just so happens that at that time, the O.J. Simpson trial was going on and interracial dating was at the forefront. I mean, man, so the uh, prosecutors in Bloomington, they were really going to try to they were going to try to get me, guys. Wow. And uh, her parents went to bat for me mm. and her parents went in to the prosecutor uh, on my behalf and uh, told them, hey, man, this is it. This is enough. You know, we we get it. I mean, man, the kid made a mistake. I mean, man, he and my daughter have reconciled. They have, man, come to an agreement. I mean, man, so let, let's forget about it. Uh, so, man, I had to go through some counseling, uh, which I, I desperately needed. Uh, and then I had to uh, do some community service, which I desperately needed. I had to be humbled. And, uh, you know, from that point, I started my healing process. And, guys, it took, uh, I don't know, I'd probably say that it probably took close to, 10 years to be completely healed from, you know, from that time during my life. I, I was going to ask you, how did you, it's amazing that she forgave you. It's incredible that her parents forgave you. How did you get to a point of forgiving yourself for this moment? I'm not for sure that I've forgiven myself now, to be honest, but okay. I mean, man, I think that it's something that, you know, you, you, you can't go back and change. So you learn to deal with it. Uh, you, you share your experiences with as many as you can to make sure they don't make the same mistakes. And then uh, you, you have to, you definitely have to carry yourself in a way that uh, not only do you have to uh, meet the expectations, but I believe that I have to exceed the expectations. And that's probably a lot of self pressure that I put on myself, uh, but it's just the way that I deal with it. So as you are climbing out of the darkness, uh, you go play for the University of Rio Grande. Wait, I'm sorry. I just want to back oh, up one sure, thing sure. to give my fan perspective at oh, the time because I was sure. on campus then. Th this gives a little bit of the selfish fan perspective. But again, Sharon, I was a freshman. You were my guy. I remember reading the news and seeing it. It was all over the IDS. I remember the, watching the TV about it. Everyone was talking about it. I was so angry at you, <laughs> and it's so yeah. it's it sounds still silly and trivial because I'm not the victim. No, of I this. don't. I was so angry that, and that anger lasted for years because whenever I would hear your name, I'd be like, "That's the guy that had so much in front of him, and we could have been so much together at Indiana." 
And I just remember feeling anger about it. And never once as a fan did I ever contemplate what else was going on in your life at the time. I never thought about the leg injury and what depression might have sat in and any of the pressures you were dealing with. And I remember years later kind of reading articles about you and how you were on this like road of redemption and feeling guilty as a fan that um, that I was just kind of looking at you as this like commodity that was there to help me enjoy Indiana. And it made me feel tremendously guilty. But there is a side of it also that does speak to, and I think you would probably agree with this, Indiana basketball is not just a sport. It is a community. It is, it's, it, it, yes, and it has meaning. And you talked about the Mr. Basketball stuff, how you embarrassed some people that came before you. Did this moment and the anger you felt from people like me in the fan base make you realize the magnitude of what you let slip through your fingers? You got it. There's, there is no better teaching tool in life than embarrassment, guys. And that is, uh, that's, and, and please, Eric, take this, don't take this the wrong way, but you had every right to be angry. Uh, I accept your responsibility. I understand your perspective. Uh, I mean, so I don't take that in a negative way at all. Uh, I put myself in that position. I mean, and, and as I, as I said earlier, I mean, man, it was so much bigger than me. And I, I had no idea. I mean, I was just a kid that was doing just doing something that he loved. Uh, but you know, as I've gotten older and and talked to people and learned and been around to some places, man, uh, not only do I really understand the magnitude, uh, I'm still uh, I- I'm still fixing what I broke. And guys, I may be fixing what I broke for the rest of my life. And if that's the case, I'm all right with that. Uh, but yeah, in my mind, uh, I'm in debt. Wow. Well, uh, you you then go on to continue your career, as Ward was saying, at Rio Grande, uh, which was obviously a very different level of attention. <laughs> yes, night and day, buddy. Right. But, but you killed it there. I mean, you killed it. You averaged 25 points a game. Yeah, take us take us a little bit through, you know, we, we've, we've plunged into darkness with you now. And how, how do you start to take this journey back? We can start at Rio Grande, but then if you can take us into how, how Pat Knight stepped back into your life. So uh, Rio Grande was the uh, the comeback starting point. Now, guys, I wasn't even for sure if I could play basketball at that level. So that's one of the reasons that I went to NAI school. I just wasn't for sure. I had so many doubts, so many questions. Uh, I mean, nobody really to lean on. I mean, I was lost, guys, completely. So I go to Rio Grande for a year. And, guys, I didn't even – I finished the season. And about a week after the season was over – Pat Knight calls me. Hey, Sharon, it's Pat. And I'm thinking to myself, man, why are you calling me? <laughs> and he said, this is the first thing he says. He says, hey, man, listen, whatever happened between you and my dad, that's between you guys. He said, but this is what I can tell you. I just got a head coaching job at a uh, semi-pro league, and you're the first person that I'm calling to offer an opportunity to. You want to play for me or not? Wow. I said, are you kidding me? I'm on my way where I need to be. And that was the first step in the come, well, the second step in the comeback process 
uh, played for, it was a league called the IBA in uh, Wisconsin. Uh, it was a, a league that was in the northern part of the states and included parts of Canada and uh, played really well that year. Uh, I mean, Pat put me in a really good spot, as I told you guys, that he resurrected my playing career. Uh, that summer, uh, he got another job in a league at that time that was called the USBL. Uh, that was a team that was based out of Columbus, Ohio. He pulled me in on it, had me be a part of that. And then the following season, uh, I landed my first job in Europe. Well, real quick, Sharon, just to take a, a half step back. After what happened with being dismissed from the team, did any of did you have any conversations with your teammates at the time? Oh, yeah. Did, who reached out to you? What do you remember from that time? Who who was supportive? What 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 was that like for you? Uh, all of them reached out at one point or another. Probably the guy that reached out the most uh, probably was Brian Evans wow. at that time, and that's probably because he was the senior leader. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, man, I think that uh, from a personal perspective, I was a knucklehead, but I was a great teammate. By the way, and I, I prided I, myself in being a good teammate. By the way, I I, I want to say this because you shouldn't have to say this. When we've talked to Brian Evans and and Pat Graham specifically, they raved about you as a teammate. They raved about what you meant to that team and how hard you worked and and what you, just how you fit into the culture. There there has never been anyone to say anything other than that. So you should be you should feel good about that. Well, that, that, I think that that was the uh, that was the one thing that I took a lot of pride in. Uh, I, and again, I think it goes back to the foundation that I was given. Uh, man, you just always got to be a good teammate, and that's just not in sports, guys. That's in life. Uh, so that is uh, that's one thing that I hang my hat on to this day. Uh, and I just, uh, you know, man, I think to whom much is given, much is expected, and I try to live accordingly. Uh, but, you know, obviously uh, I had to go through a whole lot to learn that. Well, on that journey of learning that at some point in your um, professional uh, playing career, which spanned several countries, which is really incredible. I mean, you played in Sweden and Israel and Latvia. It's really incredible. At some point during there, I think I've got the timing right. You decide to write a letter to Coach Knight. Yep. Can sure you, did. Can you, so, with, with that, the, however much you want to say about what you wrote, can you just kind of walk us through the decision to write a letter to him, why you did that, and, and what your what your hope was? So one of the things, guys, when you go to a different country, it, you, you're isolated. Different language, different culture, different beliefs, uh, different way of socializing. Uh, my first year in Sweden, guys, I was lost completely. I had not a clue. I just knew I was going to play basketball. Mm -hmm. And it just so happens that around about that time, Lauren Hill, had uh, dropped an album called Miseducation. And that uh, that album is just full of wisdom. I mean, man, and I'm on the plane, and I just kept replaying it and replaying it and replaying it. And because, I, guys, I didn't have anybody to, to give me any leadership or lead me down the path. I mean, I mean man, and I felt that it was my spiritual guide talking to me through her. Mm. I mean, man, so uh, I learned a lot. I, I got isolated. I mean, man, I was still able to have my life. I was still able to you know, play, do what I love and make a little bit of money. But other than that, I was isolated. And when you got a lot of downtime, man, it, it allows you a lot of self-reflection time. And I told myself then, man, you got to get your life together, buddy. I mean, man, so, and that was probably the last step to me making the comeback. So as I continued to play, at some point I knew I was 
go and want to coach. And I knew that the only way I could coach was to make sure that I reconciled my relationship with Coach Knight. So I came back home after I got finished playing, and uh, I met a guy who was working with kids in my community. And, you know, he said, so what are you going to do now? And I said, I don't know. And he said, you should coach. I said, I've been thinking about it. He said, you should do it. And I said, man, there's so many hurdles. I don't have a degree. I got, I mean, I just started throwing out excuses. And he said, well, you can do one of two things. Either you can sit here and make a whole lot of excuses of why you can't do it. He said, or you can go back, get your degree, write Coach Knight a letter, tell him all that you've done, and see what happens. I said, you know what? That's a good idea. So sure enough, guys, I went back, finished my degree. As soon as I finished my degree, I said, I'm going to sit down and write this letter, and I'm going to see what happens. And By guys, the way, when you say you – real quick, when you say you finished your degree, where did you get your degree from? So my degree is from Indiana University, but that's I finished right. at Indiana University Southeast. But that's right. But you graduated uh, Indiana University. Oh, yes, sir, I did. I'm Good for you, man. alum, guys. I love that. Okay. Yes, sir. After yes, everything sir, you went through – and again, this is a piece of the story that doesn't get talked about as much. After everything you went through – you graduated from Indiana University. I mean, that is that is incredible. That that is something that you should be commended for. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but but go back. So you got no, no. your degree, and you decided to sit down and pen a letter. So I made a promise to two people that I couldn't renege on to, and one of them was my mother, and then the second person was Coach Knight. So if I'm going to reach out to him, I better have done what I promised him I would do. So I finished it, went back. I wrote the letter, and in fact, guys, I wrote the letter 10 times before I finally sent it. Mm-hmm. I was so nervous. Uh, man, I was scared, intimidated, embarrassed. Uh, I mean, I, I was all those things, man. And so I finally I finally wrote one that I was satisfied with, uh, let my wife read it, let my mother read it, and then uh, I said, okay, I'm going to send it. And I thought to myself, okay, man, this is probably going to be the longest wait that I've ever had in my life. But, guys, it wasn't uh, – I don't even think it was a week he responded back. Wow. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it's a running joke amongst the older players. There's only one person to get on Coach Knight's bad side and get back on his good side, and that is uh, me. Huh. So, <laughs> this uh, must have been a good letter. I, yeah. I, I, take, uh, I take pride in that. Uh, I mean, guys, I just, I just told the truth. Uh, I, I accepted accountability for my faults and my shortcomings. And I uh, explained to him what I had done to, to try to right the ship. And, uh, I mean, man, and, and here's the crazy thing, guys. He accepted me back with open arms. And uh, I probably ruined something for him that was really, really important for him. I mean, man, he allowed me to be a part of that program uh, that he had built. And, uh, I mean, man, and had in a position of national glory. And, I mean, man, I embarrassed him. So uh, for him to, you know, allow me to come back, man, I thought that it uh, thought that it's, it speaks a lot about who Coach Knight is, no matter what you see, and, you know, no matter his approach to coaching kids. And I mean, man, but the, the heart at the end of the day is what matters. And uh, I mean, man, I think it, it speaks a lot about his heart. Do you keep that letter in a special place? I sure do. Yeah. Um. Did you then ever uh, get on the phone with Coach Knight after that? Did you ever meet in person after that? So uh, 
we talked on the phone after that letter about two weeks later for about two minutes. You don't get a whole lot of conversation from Coach. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but what happened was one day uh, he came down to Nashville, Indiana Opera to speak, and a buddy of mine got tickets. And uh, he said, man, Coach Knight is speaking. You need to go. And I said, I'm not going. He said, yes, you are. So sure enough, he talked me into it. I went. Uh, I waited around uh, to speak to Coach. And, uh, you know, during the speech, he opened it up for questions. And at the end of it, somebody asked me, what was your most memorable moment at Indiana University? And he said, you know, I don't have one special moment. He said, but what I do want to say is, he said, I hope the guys that played for me for four years or for one year, I hope they now understand what I was trying to do. And when he said that, man, for whatever the reason, I just felt like he was talking to me. So it was when the speech was over, I waited, went back to the back room uh, to let him know that I was there. I wanted to talk to him. And this is just how the conversation went. Coach, how you doing? He's signing an autograph. I never even looked up during the conversation. And this is what he says. Wilkerson, I hear that you finally got your life together. Yes, sir, coach. I got it together. Good for you. If you need anything, let me know. That was it. (laughs) But what did it mean to uh, you? What did it mean to you? The world. Yeah. More than you can imagine. And it's, uh, man, I've never told anybody this, but I'll tell you guys. I mean, it's been a very uh, intimate interview. So uh, that was the end of my depression. Wow. And and, and what age were you at this point? Uh, I think I was 25, 26, maybe. And, wow. and that just lifted off. It, it was done. Coach. The weight. That was it. I mean, and then from that point, once I knew I had his support back uh, now, and I'm still working on this, now my goal is to gain the trust back of the state of Indiana. And I think for the most part I've, I've done that, and now it's just going to continue to build. Just there's no other way for fans to know this unless you're willing to open up. And and I think it's really it's a really special thing that you you've trusted us with this and that hopefully, you know, you can feel like you're back in the family the next time you go to Bloomington. When was the last time you were in Bloomington? Uh, so as a former player, I get uh, two free home tickets to every game and uh, I try to get up as much as possible. Uh, but, guys, I'll be honest with you. What I try to do is, you know, if, if I want any extra tickets, I, I have to pay uh, for the cost of the tickets. Uh, but what I try to do is I try to uh, take fans up that, that, you know, are Indiana fans that have never gotten to a game or have never or have the opportunity to get to a game. I mean, man, we, we try to help them as best as we can. Uh, so I, I've been here in Madison, as I told you guys, for 13 years, and I've probably taken uh, seven or eight different people uh, up to a game. Uh, I mean, man, and you know, to see uh, to see the joy on their face, man, is priceless. And and I mean, for me, you know, it's just you know, it's it's just the norm. I mean, man, but you know, for those guys, man, it's it's uh, you know, it's something special in their life, and they never forget it. So uh, yeah, it's 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 been a very humbling uh, humbling experience, guys. Well, and what what have your interactions been like? I, I think that we live in a forgiving society. As long as you've earned that forgiveness. And uh, I think through my experience, I think for the most part, the fans have forgiven me because when I go back, they're ultra uh, receiving. I mean, man, they're 
you know, you can hear the whispers in the crowd. Sharon Wilkins, I mean, man, it's it's actually pretty cool. Oh, uh, nice. So, uh, I mean, man, yeah, that that just, I mean, you know, fan to come up, say hello, ask you, what are you doing now, you know, and such and such. And so it's, uh, you know, for me, it's a, it's an acceptance, and it, uh, it it's it's just confirmation, man, that you're going down the right path. Before we kind of wrap up, I do want to revisit something we touched on briefly, which is your your professional playing career ends after several stops and, and a successful run over many years. And then you get a phone call from this guy who has just popped up in your life at opportune times, Mr. Pat Knight, about <laughs> coaching at Lamar. What was that? Just walk us through that phone call and what that experience was like for you. Well, first, let me say this. Pat Knight's like my guardian angel, and I genuinely mean that, Gus. Uh, so what happened was my wife, uh, she's a huge, she's actually a University of Louisville alumna, and it just so happens that uh, that particular day, Lamar was playing University of Louisville. And she called me on the phone, and she said, hey, she said, Lamar's playing Louisville. Let's go. And I said, you really want to go to that game? She said, yeah, I do. She said, I think it'll be pretty cool for you to see Pat. I said, you know what? You're probably right. So sure enough, guys, she bought the tickets. We went to the game. We had really good seats. We sat on the third row right underneath the rim. Uh, as soon as the game was over, I said, hey, I'm just going to say hello to Pat, and, you know, then we can get out of here. Well, Pat came out of the locker room, guys, and we stood there probably for about 45 minutes to an hour just talking. And uh, the last thing he said to me, I said, Pat, I said, I'm trying to get into coaching at the college level. And he said, if I get an opening, I'll call you. And sure enough, guys, uh, I think it was about a year and a half later. He had an assistant, uh, Joseph Price, that was uh, taking a head job. And he called me and said, hey, he said, I, I may have an opportunity for you. And uh, he said, I'll know within a week, but I'm just giving you a heads up because if I call, you have to come right now. And it wasn't three days later. He called me back and it was uh, it was a done deal. No interviews, no man. I had submitted my resume. And next thing I know, I'm assistant coach at Lamar University. How much fun was that to be back in the game at the collegiate level? Oh, unbelievable, guys. I mean, that was, uh, for me, that was completing the circle, if you will. And, uh, you know, at, at some point, uh, I'm sure that, you know, I, I will hopefully have the opportunity to get back at that level. Uh, but right now, this is, you know, where I'm supposed to be at. And, you know, it's it's kind of funny because everything that I've learned now is is such a great use to me uh, right now. So it's uh, it's funny the way that it works. I uh, I think there's a really funny kind of uh, juxtaposition of the fact that at the highest of the high, you're playing Kentucky, ranked number one in the country at the Hoosier Dome with probably forty five thousand people, forty thousand people in the crowd beating them, and you know, a couple decades later after you go through what you went through, you're on this just an incredible road of redemption, really. And you end up as the, if I'm not mistaken, your first head coaching job is at the Catholic school that you mentioned earlier, Shaw, correct, in Madison County? That's right. Do you know what the enrollment at Shaw High School is? How many people? Uh, uh, 200 kids. I think it's 220 kids. Yeah, I actually think that in the year, I saw a stat that in the year 2013, it was 166 kids. May, you may be right. Um, but I anyway, think it had increased a little bit. There you go. But uh, yeah, that's about right. Yep. But 1A program. 
the, yes, exactly. And 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 now you've taken a step up to to Madison Consolidated High School. But I just love that your journey has taken you from and your journey in the game of basketball, which has as you have said, is so much more than just a game. It really has been your life for forever, uh, since eighth grade at least. And to go from that high of high to 166 or 200 kids and now working your way up through the coaching ranks um, has to be somewhat fulfilling for you, right? When you look oh, at it. I mean, guys, Madison, uh, Madison Consolidated High School has taken really good care of me and they have uh, given me an opportunity that probably uh, not many would have, have ventured to ventured out to do. Uh, the community is unbelievable. Uh, the administration is unbelievable. Uh, and more specifically and probably most important, uh, the kids are just unbelievable kids. And this is, uh, you know, this is a small Indiana, you know, town, and they are basketball crazy. Uh, and in fact, guys, I, I got a, a lunch date, and I'm actually sitting in, in a uh, cafeteria right now. And, uh, I mean, man, it's uh, it's basketball crazy here, so well, so, we will, uh, we, yeah, will we will, we will, look, we could talk to you for hours more. We will let you get to your lunch date. Um, I want to ask one quick question. I think the answer Absolutely. is yes. But are you an Indiana University basketball fan? Yes. God bless Unequivocally. you. Unequivocally. God bless you. Okay, I, then I, I root for no other college team but Indiana University. Yes. <laughs> what's your perspective on what's going on with the program right now? What, what do you think of the direction? I, I think Archie is doing a really good job. And I, I hope that Archie continues to recruit Indiana kids. Yeah, That has been the difference between Coach Knight and the rest of the coaches after Coach Knight. Coach Knight roster was 75% Indiana kids. And uh, the rest of the coaches, the roster has been 75% kids out of state. And I would definitely love to see Archie continue to recruit Indiana kids. Well, it looks like he's doing that, and let's get some thoroughbreds down there at Madison, and you can funnel them up to Indiana. That's what we need. Yeah, right. I sure hope so. Yeah, I sure hope so, keep, guys. Keep them like Romeo. Keep steering them away from across the river. Keep pointing them north, whoever you have yeah, down coach, there. We, yeah, we we pointing them right to Bloomington, guys. Well, Sharon, <laughs> Sharon, I, I just want to take a minute to say uh, thank you to you for, for taking the time with us and being as honest and transparent as you could possibly be and walking us through the ups and downs of your life. Uh, I said to you, you know, 18-year-old Eric Pankowski in 1995, 20, almost 25 years ago now, uh, you were my guy, and yep. I was a huge fan. And and then what happened kind of made us have a little split that you never knew about. Only I knew about. Um, and I've been I've been eager and, and honestly nervous about this interview because I don't even want to call it an interview. This conversation, because you were my guy um, and I was hurt when that all happened, as many were. But Sharon, I got to tell you, man, what you have done with your life since your perspective, your honesty, your accountability, you are my guy, man. And I know that there are many Indiana fans listening to this right now that are feeling the same exact way. Uh, I love talking to you. I would love to meet you face to face, shake your hand and thank you for you know, your journey and, and the way that you have continued the journey is remarkable and it's aspirational and inspirational and i hope i hope 
the people listening to this get a fraction of the feeling I'm getting from it because I just find it like life affirming. And like, yeah, I don't I, know. I hope I, that I, you guys come back to Indiana. I do. And I hope that you guys will potentially be able to make it to a game of ours because uh, we're going to be very exciting. But guys, I just truly want to thank you guys, man, because uh, this is uh, this has meant a whole lot to me and I was really looking forward to it. Well, so uh, man, I'm, I'm very humbled, my friend. Uh, well, thank you, Sharon. Those are, those are just generous words that I'm not sure Warden I know how to deal with, but I will tell you this. We are coming to Indiana. What are you doing on November 16th? November 16th, we're doing our first ever live event for the podcast. We're going to do it in Bloomington. I know you're coaching. November the 16th? Yes. Yeah. Is, do you guys know what day of the week that is? Saturday. Saturday. I may have a game. Can I check my schedule? If I don't have a game, I'll be in Bloomington. Yes. If you don't have a game, you come as our guest. We're going to have lots of former players there, including Pat Graham, I think, is going to be coming if he doesn't have a game. Uh, AJ Moye is coming. Todd Leary is probably going to come. Like We're going to have some former players there. It's going to be trouble. And we want you, Sharon, to be back. I can tell you guys this. If I do not have a game November 16th, I will be in Bloomington. Awesome. Well, we will stay in touch on uh, on text. And uh, Sharon, thank you, man. I, I couldn't be happier for you, for your family. Um, for Madison? For Madison. They for, scored. And for Indiana. Because um, you, you do look like you said, life is not about the successes. It's about how you deal with the failures. And how you have come back from your missteps is inspirational and I hope no one listening to this thinks like in any way we skated over the missteps. I think you you took accountability for them each step of the way, and that's what's so refreshing about it. Uh, thank you, Sharon. Just thank you, thank you, thank you. Absolutely. Guys, I greatly appreciate it, man. I look forward to hearing from you, Eric. I do, my friend. We will definitely be in touch. Enjoy your lunch. Yes, sir, guys. Thank you so much, man. You guys have a good weekend, and, guys. And by the way, please thank your wife, too, because we didn't spend enough time talking about her, but clearly she's a big part of your road to redemption and deserves a lot of credit, and, and thank her for us as well. I sure will, guys. That's your bottom dollar, fellas. And, and tell her to get her ass out of Louisville and come to Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> I got you, guys. I got All you, All right, Sherrod. Be Take good. care, man. Hey, talk to you guys soon. Okay, bye-bye. Who's your hysterics? You didn't take your headphones off this time. Nope. I was ready for this. I, I am so filled with emotion right now. Like, I could cry. I yeah. mean, there were moments throughout there where I thought I was going to cry. I think he got there for a moment, too. Yeah. It's just, um, that's real life, man. That is, that guy dealt with, uh, it's the humanity we continue to see here, I should say talking to these guys where they have you said it they have been a commodity to us for most of our lives and these conversations have really changed that no longer are they a two-dimensional figure on television a stat sheet yeah a stat sheet getting us what we want or disappointing us by not getting us what we want in the way of wins and return to glory it's like oh yeah these are real people and it even and in, in, in talking to the guys who have had the toughest road with injuries, with run-ins with the law, they're all inspiring. Yeah. 
you know, n- n- none of them have been like, yeah, and things went wrong, and then they just stayed wrong, and they were wrong forever. It, it, at least the guys willing to come on and talk about it have found the light at the end of the tunnel. And, it, you know, honestly, like, there's plenty of things that I haven't forgiven myself for. Right. You know, and hearing how other people work through them, it's how can you not relate to it? Yeah, and I think, like, the thing that you hope as an Indiana fan is that playing for Indiana means as much to the players as it means to us, right, as fans, which is a very difficult bar to reach because it means so much for us. And hearing Sharon, you heard how much his team meant to him, how much his coach meant to him, how important it was for him to graduate from Indiana University, yeah. how important it was for him to fulfill that promise, how he wants the f- to redeem himself with the state. Yeah, it's like, and that he still feels like he's working on that. Yes, and he hasn't forgiven himself for this sin that he committed that, that everyone else that was involved has forgiven him for. It's just, um, it humanizes them in a way that I never, ever thought this podcast would would do i never imagined yeah we just wanted we just wanted to get these good like okay uh you get a hang out at a bar one evening with your favorite iu players and and swap well not swap stories receive Listen, stories yeah. yeah i have no stories we have none. <laughs> um and that, although you do have a story of spending a night in jail near where uh well, this is this. Can we say I, that? I, yeah, I mean, what was interesting is that yes, I spent a night in jail in Bloomington, also. Oh, geez. but that I'm technically not ever allowed to return to Hanover College, <laughs> and and when they they I was escorted off Hanover's campus by the Madison police, and they put me up for the night. Uh, after a wise tour concert. They put you up for the night. Free of charge. I mean, and look, I do want to say in the case of uh, the judge in Madison, all charges were dismissed. Oh, there you go. So you have no record. Yeah. No, I'm clean. But, Expunged. Uh, but yeah, no, I have history with both uh, the Bloomington PD and the Madison PD. Well, uh, and, and sorry to, to go trivial there for a moment, but... Um, My, and, and let's just say, for the record, it was just being drunk in public, there you Th- go. There was no, 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 nobody was hurt. Nothing was, well, maybe, maybe yeah. there was some, some small property, property damage. damage. <laughs> was that did a guess, or did I tell no, you? No, I just knew that's where it was going. I mean, drunk and like, right, yeah. all right. But but back to Sharon, <laughs> and it speaks to what you talked about about how these are not two dimensional figures anymore. My perception of what Sharon Wilkerson was could not be further from the truth of who he is as a human being. It could not. I never would have ascribed the attributes to him that I would now after listening to him talk. And it shows a little bit about, like, fandom, what it can do to you and how it clouds things. But part of what it is to be an Indiana fan is to look a little bit beyond that. And and it's why graduating from Indiana matters to us. It's why former players coming back and connecting to the university matters to us. And to go back to, you know, we've had previous stories like this, but that to get Sharon on this podcast, it it took Pat Graham reaching out to him and that they hadn't been in touch in a while and that in order to set this up, they ended up talking on the phone for an hour and now maybe if the timing works out, 
can get together in Bloomington. That's so fun. And it's such a warm fuzzy of like, oh, yeah, like bringing the family back together. And look, it's it's like anything else. You know, I think we're all adults now and there's children and there's jobs and their responsibilities. But to be able to be a conduit or an excuse for some of these guys, like, did you hear the way he laughed when he heard that Pat might be there? <laughs> yeah, I know. like that was like, oh, they want to get into some funny stories and some some good times. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's it's amazing, and just listening to his story and and him talk about why he coaches now and the depression that he went through. These these are human beings and and they're kids when we're watching them at Indiana. They're eighteen to twenty two year old kids. Well, and and that somebody well really all these guys have this perspective now, you know, especially the ones who have been out as long as we have or even longer, uh, where you know clearly Sharon was a a beloved teammate, and even for both of the nights to resume their relationship with him after all this went down, does show you what kind of human being and teammate he was in a way that we probably all dismissed. Maybe started painting the picture of him when he was uh, uh, no longer Mr. Basketball, even before he got to Bloomington. And so I think that it's it's the, the public perception of which we get just a very, very fraction tip of the iceberg we don't get we get we get a facsimile i mean we get a we get nothing i mean we don't know what these kids are like yeah. as human beings and this podcast hopefully for our listeners has given a snippet into the 25 to 30 of ones that we have done of these are real human beings that have incredible stories and have passions that that we share um and and I wanted to say one and thing. And wait, and foibles. And foibles. For I sure. I don't think we've got to say foibles yet Good on word. the podcast. So I wanted Good word. I wanted to throw that in there. Um the other thing I just want to mention and then we'll wrap it up. Unless you have something I didn't want to like I just made a <laughs> command decision that you I can't guess, talk I'll, anymore. I'll save it all for the next one. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. No, I got nothing. Um, we've all done things in our lives that are embarrassing and that we are embarrassed by. And the most common response to that, at least for me, is to avoid dealing with that embarrassment as much as humanly possible. I feel like you're great at just totally calling yourself out and and saying that. No, no, no. On things that are truly embarrassing, where I'm not talking about like silly stuff. I'm talking about where you disappoint somebody, where yeah. you know you let someone down, right? Or embarrassed an institution or whatever. Yeah. That 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 carries a weight to it that is extremely difficult to handle. Sharon could not have gone through a more, and he used the word, embarrassing situation than what how he left the Indiana University program. It was public. It was criminality was involved. It was um, ugly. It, it involved some violence. It, it involved a, a lot of things that that are very difficult to come back from, very difficult, let alone face in personally. And he is taking fans 
that want to see what Indiana University basketball is like and taking them to Bloomington seven yeah. or eight times and walking back into that building where he hears the murmurs of, oh, Sharon Wilkerson is here. But, you know, when he said that, I think that was in a positive it, it way. It was. Which I was I was happy for our fan base. That- Me too, but there is no doubt that anyone our age or older that mentioned Sharon Wilkerson in their head is thinking about he was dismissed from the team. And he walks back into that environment and likes it. Yeah. And has faced it. And that is what being a man is. That's what being an adult is. He talked about, you know, I can't talk about my depression to somebody when he was a 19-year-old kid because that's not being a man. He is a grown man who has matured in a way that you can only hope. I mean, I have kids. If my kids make mistakes in their lives, which they will, and big ones, I'm sure, at times— I hope they can recover and grow the way Sharon Wilkerson has. Well, I, I hope that. And I think, you know, the conversation has shifted so much from the mid-90s to today about mental health. You know, yes. it's it's night and day. And I feel that, one, he's getting out there and he's telling that story and he's not making an excuse. But look, I'm going to cut him a lot more slack. One, you have been the, an incredible athlete where incredible physical exertion has been a part of your life for years, every day, for years, and you're part of a team, and all your identity's wrapped up in that, and then your leg is snapped. And they're talking about you not being able to walk, yeah, much less get, up. like, like wh- who am I now? Who am I now? And that I know I get grouchy because I haven't had, a like, a ham sandwich in a long enough amount of time, and I get snippy with my kids, you know what I mean? Like, that if my whole sort of mode of living was if your ripped identity away from was me. ripped away from you yeah and he talked about it. it was so difficult for him as a younger guy to separate the athlete from the human from the person there and, was no separation and and you know everybody else all his other teammates they, they support as much as they can but they got to keep living their lives keep being a part of the team keep doing the thing that like i i have a lot of respect for him and that how he was able to cope and keep it together and put on a brave face for as long as he could, but that it did end it up, you know, all blowing up one night. You know, it, it doesn't sound like this was a guy who was just like an asshole to everybody in his no. life. And this was the culmination. It was like a clearly something we will never know exactly what went into an incident after really over a year of of all this darkness. A year and a half, yeah. And, and again, and he said it. No excuse. No excuse. It was Bobby Knight's quote for that week. But Not it's an con- excuse. But it's, it's context. context. And, and it's more like, well, somebody hears that, right? And is like seeing the trouble, the warning signs, and can can get help That's before it gets to the breaking That's point. That's the key, that he can use what he went through, and he's working with young kids now. Yeah. And that's where they're impressionable. And imagine if somebody could have taken Sharon in 1994 and helped him through it, maybe that grave mistake wouldn't have been committed. Well, and to his point, and and, and I will say in my child rearing, one thing I try to do is like, hey, I, I my daughter, she's nine, it definitely gets her attention more when I tell her how I messed stuff up. Right. You know, because she knows, like, oh, wait, wait, what's going on, Dad? Like, he's trying to tell me something right now where he's making himself look bad, so I maybe won't do that in a few years. 
and I have plenty of examples. I was going to say, if that's the case, my <laughs> kids are in great shape because I, they got nothing but mistakes <laughs> to go off. Well, and I did, I did have to have my daughter return to school after the day she told her teacher that her daddy had been in jail. Oh, I, I was like, Bo, you got to put it into context. It was just the drunk tank, okay? I was, just, you know, it wasn't like I was in prison. All right, make sure your teacher knows I'm not a hardened criminal. No, just a drunk. <laughs> just, just a drunk, <laughs> and even that's behind me. Just a garden variety. <laughs> Um, anyway, look, we've taken up enough time. Incredible conversation with Sharon. I desperately hope we can figure out a way to get him to Bloomington on November 16th and hope to see many of you. Uh, we will be issuing tickets for the event because we think we're going to have a good response and we don't want to turn people away at the door. So uh, keep following us on Twitter, at Hoosier Hysterics, no vowels and hysterics. Um, uh, email us at HoosierHysterics at gmail.com. We have T-shirts for sale. Oh, the T-shirts look great. And they are really soft. Super soft. I mean, How really, soft are they, Eric? They are as soft as a non-conference schedule designed to make the tournament. <laughs> on the next batch of shirts, that's probably what we put on the back. Yeah. I, <laughs> it's funny because I do want to make sure that I that people realize I said it's, gen, it's generic. It's as soft as a non-conference. I didn't say as soft as our non-conference schedule. I'll, I'll say it. No, no, no. No. As soft as a non-conference Look, schedule. It's like it is in print by design. Could say as soft as a non-conference football schedule designed to get to six wins. There you go. It could work for that either both program ways. this year. Uh, so anyway, uh, T-shirts are for sale. Uh, I've sent links out on Twitter. It's at homefieldapparel.com. If you just go to homefieldapparel and go to Indiana, you'll see our shirt as part of it. Once you get our shirt, then look at all the other stuff, too. They got a lot of great stuff on there for Indiana people. Yeah. Um, and then our event, November 16th in Bloomington. We're down to two locations waiting to lock in. We will issue tickets. Tickets will be free. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to have former players. We're going to record a podcast. We really just want to meet as many of you as possible. Look into your eyes. Yes. Are you talking to me? Or you? No, you I'm, got... lo I'm looking into your eyes right yeah, now. I, I want to look into their eyes. Like, just put faces. And shake hands, man. Sh yeah. Just, just, just if, talk. I don't probably can't bring babies for us to kiss, but you know, show us a picture of your kids. A couple people have said they want to bring like their young kids, like their families. And I think we're going to be able to make that work, even if it's at a bar. Oh, really? Yeah. For one of the locations, for sure, families are welcome. Right, right. I don't know about the other. We'll we'll, we'll get into that. But uh, we're also going to do some giveaways there of tickets to Indiana, some special experiences for Indiana. It's going to be really fun. Uh, more details on that. Please follow us on Twitter. As always, uh, thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next time. From the halls of assembly, you'll hear us scream and shout. Our love of Indiana is manic and devout. Archie and his boys, we discuss in unique manner. We won't be satisfied until we hang another banner. Us two goofy guys go by names of Ward and Eric. And as you probably know by now, we're Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics.